Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Don't have time to dwell on what you guys are sensitive about or feeling this morning. We've All got right. a lot of work to do. Okay. I mean, th- th- there's an abundance I'm good of with political that. news out there today. Forget the Braves losing a football game yesterday, 16-13. <laughs> they lost a football game? Yeah, I said 16-13. Wow, that is I mean, pretty much kind football, of a football score. score. Um, back and forth. Um, that's one in their last three, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. They're playing 250 baseball. What yep. is a 700 team playing uh, 250 baseball? I told you that all-star break came at the wrong well, time. It's just baseball. It's yep. funky. It'll um, The water will settle where the water uh, is intended to settle. So we got a lot of big stories today. You've got Whistleblower Wednesday. Um, <laughs> Sounds well, like they, a feature. Well, I mean, um, scheduled to appear in our nation's capital before the House Oversight Committee is... Um, Gary Shapley, we know him. And then uh, one of these masked wrestlers I was thinking about, you know, who's behind that mask? I don't know. Um, Whistleblower X is to be um, appearing beside Gary Shapley this morning. The The fundamental question is, did the government, did our federal government obstruct an investigation into the Bidens? I mean, it'll get complicated, I would imagine, you know, there'll be it'll be another interesting moment in American politics. The Democrats, the liberals in our nation's capital will be defending the integrity and honor of our government. You know, they would never do this. Not the FBI uh, or DOJ. They would never uh, obstruct justice seeking um, agencies within our federal government. And the Republicans, the party of law and order and respect and civility historically, uh, that's what they like to be known as. They'll be the rabble rousers. They'll be poking the bear to see if they can find out, you know, whether or not indeed. Um, but I think it's fairly settled that the Bidens advantage themselves. Now, now I'm not saying illegally, but I think it's, it's fairly um, settled science that the ba- that the Bidens have advantaged themselves in the name of the Biden family, right? I'm mean, the Biden name. I think Hunter Biden has admitted that much. Well, nobody has ever answered. I don't even think they've asked the question of the players here, the actual Bidens, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Jim Biden, how they make their money. Well, what, mean, what What is their business? Okay, but let's, let's ask you this. Let, let's be fair to the Bidens. It is believable that someone would put a family member of a prominent American politician on the board just to have um, kind of an unspoken favor. I mean, yeah. that, that, that's a legitimate play. I mean, I'll give an example. Um, As I opposed know, to a quid pro quo, I mean, that, it's like, hey. That, that's the next step in the saga. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with, with a corporation putting the kid of a prominent American politician on their board. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. In, in all honesty, it probably makes some sense. I mean, it really and truly does. The the imagery, you know, we're um we're, we're all globalists here. Uh, can't we all get along? Uh, you know, I mean, but but there, there sure there's an appearance of impropriety without question. And you kind of scratch your head saying, dude knows nothing about energy. I mean, what's he doing on the board of an energy company? But that's not illegal. I mean, that that in itself is not a crime. It doesn't. It, it's not good optics. And if I were the, the vice president of the United States, I said, son, can't you find something else to do? I mean, is there nothing? I mean, I put you on the Amtrak board. I mean, that, you know, is there something else? You Well, it doesn't pay this much. You know, th- this is quite lucrative. 
um, and I guess risk reward, the risk of being perceived as impropriety uh, against the fifty thousand dollars a month he was being paid, not five grand a month, not fifty grand a year, uh, fifty grand a month is what he was being paid um, to sit on the board at Barisma. But but here's the question: Is there another um, chapter in that book? I think Rev would agree that there's nothing. I mean, once again, it's bad optics. It leads people down the road to being more suspicious of the government. But there's not a law that says um, Dave Baker and Ken Ard on a media empire, and we decide to put you know uh, Ivanka Trump on our board. I mean, it does. It, it smells. But but we've not done anything wrong. She accepts the invitation to sit on our board. She's not done anything wrong. But but the next thing you know, we're meeting with Ivanka to try to get her father to do X, Y, or Z uh, in the name of the federal government. That's where um, you know the. Um, that's where the crime is committed. And, you know, we don't know that to be true. We suspect strongly the Bidens enriched themselves. But was it quid pro quo? Was the government for sale? I've often wondered this. Is selling access a crime? In itself, is selling access a crime? I mean, when, you know, and I, no, no level like that. But, but when I was lieutenant governor, one of the things I felt a contribution entitled someone was access. I mean, if someone made a contribution, I'll, I'll give an example. The, the lieutenant governor in South Carolina ran the Office on Aging. The Office on Aging was responsible for a lot of um, Medicaid, uh, so some of the supplemental um, uh, meal plans, and, and there was a lot of money at stake. So when people who own these um, homes, these senior homes, or, or these these enterprises that um, sign contracts with the federal government to manage the delivery of food to people who don't have, uh, you know, I'm talking about elderly poor people. Meals on Wheels comes to mind. Um, if if Dave Baker was a wealthy business guy in that business, and Dave Baker gave me, you know, thirty five hundred dollars as I was a candidate for lieutenant governor, and Dave Baker calls the office of the lieutenant governor and says, hey. I need to get a meeting with Ken in the next day or two or three. I've got an issue. My By my granting access to Dave Baker, have I violated the law? I don't think I did. I mean, Baker was yeah. a supporter. Baker and I have this this um, this um mutual interest. Uh, you know, I run the office on aging. I'm an elected official. I run the office on aging. Baker provides a service to the office on aging. I mean, it would only stand to reason that Baker would be interested in who the lieutenant governor is. Right, I win the Republican primary. Baker says this good old red South Carolina. You know, as sad as it is, the guy's going to be you know in, in a position <laughs> to influence things that happen in the world that I'm gainfully employed. So Baker calls the office, gets a meeting, and he comes in and says, "Hey man, I just want you to know um, that I appreciate all the hard work you did. Um, it's kind of an underdog story, and uh, and if I can ever help you, if you're up my way, let me know." Shake hands, he leaves. What have we done wrong? Yeah, I don't think you have. But but if Baker says, hey, those last three contracts that I didn't get, um, they were $20 million contracts. I've got this job that I think your kid would be real good at. It's within my company. It pays $125,000 a year. I know your kid's two years out of college. Very few kids out of college make north of hundred grand a year. Um Wink, wink, nod, nod. 
I, I just think your kid would be real good at this. Baker, I'll send my kid to talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> Don't worry about those contracts. I mean, that, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, that, that's criminal. I mean, yep. you can't do that. I mean, we're, we're, we're past selling access, right? That's I right. mean, we're putting the government You're for sale. You're selling the government. Yeah. We're putting the government up for sale. I thought about it coming over. Um, I mean, of the people that made contributions to my campaign, I felt every one of those deserved um, a more prioritized access to that office than those who didn't. That's kind of the way the game is played. I'm not saying everything about it hunky-dory. I'm not saying everything about it is above board. Um, it's a little bit like there, there's holding on every play in a football game, right? They just don't catch it uh, some of the time, and some of the time they do. But but if you so, – so I think the question that we have to ask today, because I don't know that we'll get to the bottom of it. You know, I think someone in, will ask, obviously, you know, do you have any idea, Mr. Shapley, how much money exchanged hands? I mean, do you have a paper trail? But, but the, the fundamental question that has to be answered today, did our federal government obstruct your ability to do your job um, to the fullest extent the law allowed? I mean, to me, that's the fundamental question um, today. There will be a corroborating, I guess, witness, whistleblower X, we understand, or I read uh, last night of the Wall Street Journal, whistleblower X will validate or confirm, you know, what Shapley has said publicly, uh, but he's not said it under oath. I mean, Shapley is sat down with um, Brett Baer. Remember when he sat down with Brett Baer and for about 20 or 25 minutes told his story, but he's not done any of this uh, under threat of perjury. So when he says, you know, put your hand on the Bible, swear it, you get sworn in, and he's a, a sworn in, you know, um, witness, uh, not to a crime, to an investigation that may or may not lead um, to a crime. So, so today, at some point in time, is it nine or ten? Might be ten when the uh, when the oversight committee meets, and um, and we'll have a couple of whistleblowers. I think they met in private Monday, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there's been a couple of leaks here and there. The New York Times had somewhat of a leak. I, the, the biggest story out of this is um, the the identity of the second whistleblower will be made public. No idea. Is, is it a, kind of a low-ranking official within the IRS, a high-ranking official? I don't even know if it's in the IRS. I mean, I, I presume he is or she is because it's in the same government agency, but it could be at DOJ, could be at the FBI. I don't have any idea. But they say they've got a second witness that will corroborate. Now, to me, the next obvious step is get David Weiss because Weiss has said that he had full authority. The DOJ did not stonewall. The DOJ did not require of him to do certain things or to ask permission to do certain things. Um, not only has Weiss said it, Merrick Garland has said that we had no handcuffs. We had no shackles at all on Weiss. Weiss was granted full authority, full autonomy, the ability to investigate wherever he chose, however he chose, was his call and his call alone. Shapley says that Weiss told them that's not the case. Now, you know, I don't know if Shapley's telling the truth or not. I know that either Weiss or Garland aren't, right? Because Weiss sent a letter to Oversight saying, you know, I stand by what I said publicly that I had full autonomy and authority to investigate wherever wherever I choose. But but I think we're, we're, we're to expect today to be some groundbreaking revelation of how much money the Biden's got, where the money came from. I mean, I've seen reports of a hundred million dollars. 
Really? I mean, I, I've got wow. it 15 to 20. I mean, I think I said a month yeah. or so ago. I mean, to, to me, the paper trail that I've tried to understand has it somewhere in the 15 to 20 million dollar range. But there are a couple of um, reporting agencies out there now. These are not the New York Times and Wall Street Journal or New York, uh, uh, excuse me, the Washington Post. These would be, you know, uh, right leaning conservative websites that say they can put a puzzle together that says the Bidens, you know, at the end of the day, have advantaged themselves to the tune of somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 million. Uh, we shall see. I, I, I will I will be closely attentive um, during that uh, broadcast. In fact, I went and l- downloaded YouTube TV on my uh, on my cell phone. Did it myself. Um, yeah. Got a password and all, Ref. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Did it work? Yeah, you tested yeah. it? I already tested it. Dude. It works. <laughs> Got my own password. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you must subscribe. be motivated. Well, I, I am. I, I want to see this. This because because the, the fundamental question that we've got to answer today, and let's not lose sight of the target. The fundamental question: Did the federal government obstruct a government agency from conducting a thorough and fair investigation? I mean, that's that's the question that has to be answered today. And I would imagine, um, you know, the next piece of the puzzle is Weiss. You know, to get Weiss uh, either corroborate or contradict what it is that Shapley says. But if Shapley says the same thing under oath that he said while not under oath sitting down with Brett Baer, um, and once again, forget the number. I mean, 10, 15, 100. Doesn't matter what the millions of dollars are, and it doesn't matter if Hunter was on the board or not. Was there an investigation that was going to lead to criminality by the Bidens, and did the federal government obstruct the thorough investigation to find out whether uh, because, see, I think a lot of people make a mistake by saying, well, he was on that board. Well, that's not a crime. I mean, that, that's not an issue. Being on that board, I mean, I understand the optics, and I understand political favoritism, and it doesn't look good. And we and Maybe we should have a law that says a kid of a prominent, prominent politician can't sit on a board because there's too many shenanigans that could take place. But that's not where we are today. The kids are politicians, the spouses are politicians, and I, I'll be fair to Biden. I mean, this isn't the first example. I mean, this is a very public example. Um, Google Mitch uh, McConnell's wife. Let's see what she's been doing all these years. Uh, Joe Manchin's wife. Let's see what she's been doing all these years. There are probably a couple of hundred kids who are, who are um, siblings, or excuse me, um, who are, uh, I don't want to say dependents, but they're, they're, they're the children of prominent American politicians who have been highly advantaged in their career pursuits. None of that is illegal. Having access is not illegal. Being in good standing is not in favor. Doing a favor is not illegal. But did did or did the Bidens not financially advantage themselves by you know hawking or, or selling or bartering uh, in the name of the federal government? Don't know the answer to that. I've never said I know the answer to that. I've said there's a lot of money that went somewhere in, in the Bidens' name. I mean, you know what the money went there for. What, what, what Hunter Biden did to receive that funding, those are the questions that need to be investigated. And we're trying to find out today whether the government was allowed. Certain motivated nonpartisans within the government, were they or were they not allowed to do the job required to find out if indeed uh, there's criminality or not? 843-661-0937. I want to go back and put the puzzle together yesterday. We struggled a bit uh, toward the end of the show on you know, the Electoral College and exactly where uh, Trump would be if he's the nominee. I went back and looked last night, uh, some of the polling. 
I've argued this week and last that it appears to me to be inevitable. Uh, I'm back on the fence. Really? I am. I looked at some New Hampshire and some Iowa polling. And this is a momentum process. I mean, this is not a national poll. I mean, if there were a national election tomorrow for a Republican nominee, Trump wins hands down. No doubt about it. I mean, if there were a national election six months from now, but that's not the case. This is a process. There is an Iowa caucus in January. There is a New Hampshire primary. There is a South Carolina primary. And and you gain momentum and candidates fall out. So that 6% for Haley goes where? But it's, it's not a same-day voting. It's, it's a little bit like the, the COVID, you know, it's voting season. So we've got a season of voting, and Trump's at 37. I mean, he's 50 nationally, 49, 50, 51. I've seen him as high as 53. So he's 50-ish nationally. But in Iowa, he's 37. In New Hampshire, he's 37. Um, DeSantis is 22 or 3. That's, that's what's in that's striking distance. But that's a big lead for Trump. Don't get me wrong. I'd rather be 37 than 22 or 3. But that's, but there's some things that could happen there between now and January that make me believe my call of inevitability may be a little premature. Hmm. Uh, 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few moments. Okay, let's go to the second news story of the week or of the day. I mean, this is not the week, but of, of the day. <laughs> So, you know, one of the biggest stories of the day today will be the whistleblower. I think it's the biggest um, story, the, the Jack Smith letter of notification uh, that, that an indictment is more likely than not pending. I mean, that's a big story without question, but we don't have the indicting documentation. I mean, all of this would be rumor and uh, innuendo and this may and that may and she may and, and he may. Um, Jonathan Turley did a good job last night of trying to argue uh, where he thinks this is headed. He would be a constitutional scholar and legal mind, uh, but he brought up something I thought was very interesting. And uh, th- this is where the conspiracy theorists, you know, c- kind of um, c- kind of gravitate toward. You know, if you're ever found guilty of leading an incitement or inciting an insurrection against your nation, uh, it could disqualify you from running for office. Now, once again, that will be where the most ardent Trump supporters run. They're trying to keep him off the ballot. They can't beat him at the ballot box, so they're trying to keep him off of the ballot. I have no idea. I've not seen any of the documentation. Um, I think Turley said it better than I. Uh, Obviously, if he said it, he said it better than I. That Jack Smith has a tendency to stretch his understanding of the law. And he better have more than the speech. You know, when Trump, I mean, you know, I, I would argue, and I think I've been consistent here, that he peddled fantasy. I think he was telling a group of people who wanted to deeply believe that the election was not over, that there were certain things that could take place that I don't think could. But this is really where he fell out with a lot of governors and and Mike Pence. And I'll tell you, um, I want to stop there because I, I had some news um, yesterday, not not reporting. I mean, this would have been somebody inside uh, working on behalf of um of Trump and. That, you know, I was talking about Brian Kemp. We, we kind of walked down that road yesterday together with Kemp as a potential VP candidate or some sort of cabinet office. I mean, if, if Kemp doesn't want to be VP, you know, we need you on the team, not not meeting at the airport. I mean, that's a pretty good way to describe it. Uh, Brian, you're the governor. We don't need you just meeting at the airport. We need to deploy this infrastructure that you've got. The person that I spoke with said that the voters 
the supporters of Kemp, the supporters of Ducey in Arizona, the supporters of, the supporters of Yunkin in Virginia don't want any part of Trump. That's that's concerning to me. Mm. That you know they're Kemp supporters, and Trump threw Kemp under the bus. They're Ducey supporters in Arizona, and Trump threw Ducey under the bus. They're Youngkin supporters in Virginia, and Trump. Remember the Youngkin sounds Chinese, doesn't it? Yeah. Remember that. I just don't understand that. I mean, they, I, 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 I get so frustrated by the complications, the unnecessary politics, and running for president is complicated enough without creating things that will eventually cause you problems. So, so when he goes after Kemp, he's going after a lot of Kemp supporters. So when Kemp goes to his voters and says, hey, Donald and I have made, uh, you know, we've made amends, we've said grace over our problem, this guy tells me that he doesn't think a lot of Kemp voters will buy it. They're like, you help him if you choose to, we're not. You know, we, we don't want any part of it. See, I heard Kemp so, say yesterday something that, to me, reinforced your theory. Uh, because he was responding, I think, to this letter of uh, intention. He's been in the news a lot lately. He has. Kemp's had a lot to say recently about the election. But but I, but I he responded and just talked about, you know, this being, I don't know if he used the word witch hunt, but he talked about, you know, the, the, the he, he made some comments that made me believe more in the theory you've been talking about. He's saying things similar to DeSantis, the weaponization of government. That seems to be, we, we accuse the left of having these sound bites and cliches mm-hmm. and, you know, somebody got the memo. The walls are closing in. Well, I mean, the, the right seems to be sharing a memo with one another, the weaponization of government, you know, this two-tiered justice system. But but the, the person that I'll not identify told me yesterday, and he works at the national level. I mean, he told me yesterday, and it's not Robert. I mean, he told me yesterday that um his concern is that even if Kemp and, um, and Trump, you know, make amends, the Kemp army will not deploy as passionately as they would because they just think this is Trump playing, you know, opportunistic 101. And, I mean, who's denying that? Same thing with Ducey in Arizona. I didn't ask him about Ducey in Arizona or Yunkin in, in uh, Virginia. He volunteered that information. And if you remember, when Kemp didn't do what Trump wanted done, uh, you know, Trump did what he does. I mean, he turned on him. When Ducey didn't do in Arizona what Trump wanted done, Trump did what he always does. He turned on him. Same thing. Uh, I don't remember what the problem was in Virginia because Virginia was not one of those states that we felt was, um, you know, some statistical anomalies that didn't make much sense. Arizona and Georgia, obviously, uh, along with Pennsylvania, were two of those states. But you had a Republican governor in Virginia, excuse me, a Republican governor in Arizona, and you had a Republican governor in uh, in Georgia. I hope that's not the case. I mean, I hope there's a, there's a chance for Kemp to kind of um, go to his troops and say, hey, this is bigger than than that, you know, debate or argument that, that Donald and I, it, but it's unnecessary. I mean, it still goes back to why do you call a guy at 19, 20, 21% Ron Sanctimonious? I mean, you keep that in your pocket. And if he gets to 30, you call him Ron Sanctimonious. It's just, I mean, I, I, I do believe the theory that a lot of people have that Donald Trump would rather climb a tree and argue with someone than stand on the ground and get along. I mean, I, I, I think there are some people who have this bent gene. I mean, we all have, you know, bendy genes, but I think Trump's is completely and totally bent. And I think he enjoys the confrontation. He enjoys the hostility, um, the incivility. I just think that's his world, and he relishes that moment. And um, and he's kind of one of these guys that, you know, loyalty's a big deal to him. Now, I think loyalty is somewhat of a one-way street um, to him. I think what he did last night hurt him more than helped him. 
I mean, I said yesterday, apparently Donald Trump's getting advice from people that, that you know, are giving him sound advice. Uh, I, I'd like to believe, I, I probably, and, and this is a bridge too far, me being too optimistic, I'd like to believe when, when Kemp says, you know, I want this campaign to be forward-looking, I'd like to believe there was some coordination there amongst Republican governors and uh, the front-runner for the Republican nomination for president. But when Trump goes on Sean Hannity's town hall last night and spends about 75% of the time talking about 2018, 2019, 2020, I'm telling you guys, that is a popular subject with Sean Hannity's army. That's a very, um, that's a very good, uh, you know, something to go into in a Republican primary, but it's not going to play well in a general. It's just simply not. And it looks to me Trump's still having trouble, <coughs> excuse me, shifting from you know, 2018, 19, and 20 into 23, 24, 25, and, and beyond. And he's not going to be the president if he rehashes the 2020 election. I mean, it probably doesn't, I, I would argue it's probably net neutral in, in the primary. I think a lot of primary voters are tired of hearing about that. That They've kind of hashed it out. They believe it happened. Uh, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, let bygones be bygones, so to speak. But, but when you hear Trump, Given the opportunity to talk about 18, 19, or 20, I mean, he just he takes every advantage of that opportunity that he can. Um, and that was a little bit pessimistic. I mean, that's, that's, that's not that big. It was 2 million people watching it. Fox has lost about a million viewers on average since Tucker, um, you know, par- since they and Tucker parted ways. Oh, I thought they, they had their new lineup now that's well, supposed well, to they revamp. Have, their- they've got a new lineup, but it's about 2.3 million. <laughs> uh, it could be worse. It could be CNN at about 700,000. I mean, imagine that, guys. I mean, that's, that's still a staggering statistic to me. The downfall of CNN is one of the major political stories of the last 20 years. I mean, CNN, the most trusted name in news, I mean, the place that most Americans turned if there was a breaking news story, 9-11, the Iraq War. I mean, I'm thinking of Bernard Shaw, you know, that's um, right. hiding in a hotel reporting live from Baghdad. I mean, they, they, they were a storied news brand. I mean, they really were. I mean, they, they probably leaned uh, and, and were biased a bit to the left, but, I mean, they carried the day. They covered the news. And they now, on average, have about six hundred and fifty to 75,000 viewers. I mean, their daytime lineup is south of a half million. I mean, if you're an advertiser, I understand, you know, um, advertiser activism, so to speak. In other words, if you are a, um, uh, the electric vehicle, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to sell or a GM or Ford electric vehicle, I, I get there's some favor you gain by doing it uh, on CNN. Cause they'll run some stories that, you know, give you some cover uh, It's just propaganda is what it is, but that's kind of what the media, the modern American political media has morphed into, but, but, you know, CNN averaging roughly a half million viewers a day, uh, but that that's, that's just unbelievable uh, to me. But Fox has gone from about 3-2 to 2-2, 2-3. I think the 5, uh, I looked yesterday, the 5 was at about 2-4, 2-3-8, somewhere um, there about. Uh, Jesse Waters is 2-2. Two, two. Uh, Ingram's 2-1. I mean, it's just Matt Owl at MSNBC's 2-2-ish. Yeah, I read because the new lineup debuted Monday night, and they said that, like, Matt Owl beat Hannity on yeah. Monday night. Well, I mean, Hannity's old news i'm sorry i mean he just is he's a um i mean he reverberates in the same little echo chamber and i think people i mean i think people understand what he does he's kind of the bulldog you know he's the um he's the drum beat he's the proverbial drum beat of talk radio but i think if people are looking for substance 
you know, and something to, to, to kind of make them scratch their heads a little bit, you don't go to Hannity. I mean, there are a lot of other places you can go. I mean, the, you know, the media is decentralized. And you got Twitter and you got, you know, Facebook and all these other um, Instagram, TikTok. I mean, you know, we've really diluted people's share of, of the media. But, but I, I, it concerns me that Trump is still. I mean, there's no reason to stay there now. I mean, you've solidified yourself as the heir apparent. Excuse me. You've solidified yourself as the front runner. I mean, you've taken, you know, DeSantis is the heir apparent. That's what we all thought, right? I mean, you did, I did, everybody else did. There will eventually be a passing of the baton, and it will be to Ron DeSantis. Well, I think DeSantis has put that in jeopardy, and I think, but, but I think Trump puts it back in play. It's almost like, <laughs> yeah, I get that. You know, everybody is having trouble trying to be what they uh, really and truly should be. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. But um, but but Jack Smith, and I think this is important. Um, that there's a there's a decision. I went back and looked at um, uh, Bradenburg versus Ohio. Bradenburg versus Ohio, um, and we'll get into this as the show progresses. But it ba- what what Jonathan Turley said last night, and what I read this morning is, if 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 Smith is trying to figure out a way to put Trump in prison or keep Trump off the ballot. The, the inciting of an insurrection, the 14th Amendment, prohibits someone from being a candidate for office. But, but Turley says that the, the First Amendment has been constitutionally vetted by the Brainberg, Ohio decision. Never heard of that until yesterday. I went back and read some of, I mean, it's a, um, it's a landmark decision. It's the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and it basically interpreted the First Amendment. And their interpretation included language that said, um, this court holds that the government cannot punish inflammatory speech unless the speech is, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. Well, the January 6th commission didn't implicate Trump in inciting an insurrection. Right? As far as I know... Every charge leveled, there's been nobody charged as an insurrectionist. Is that fair? I mean, if I'm wrong, somebody call me. And Trump, was he not um, impeached but acquitted? Sure. And, and I mean, there's a double jeopardy question there. Mm-hmm. You know, does impeachment. Right. I read something this morning about the question of double jeopardy. But, but it basically says um, Ohio had a criminal code, criminal statute, that, that kind of broadly prohibited advocacy of violence i mean if you merely said hey let's go get them then then they could uh you you committed a crime in ohio and the supreme court that decision hold on to that let's take a break i don't want to get too far well no we got a minute or two here josh hold on the music just a second so clarence bradenberg uh, or brandenburg was a ku klux klansman and the media attended a rally and at the rally I mean, he, he basically encouraged revenge against blacks and Jews. Um, he said, and I quote, our president, our Congress, our Supreme Court continues to suppress the white Caucasian race. Um, he called for the expulsion of African-Americans back to Africa, Jews, uh, Jewish people back to, or Jewish Americans back to Israel, and the Ohio statute applied. 
and he was charged with a crime. And he challenged the Ohio statute, hired a lawyer, it made itself all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Bradenburg-Ohio decision in 1967 has held firm. It is the landmark decision that, that says the government cannot punish inflammatory speech unless the speech, and I guess this is where it gets a bit ambiguous, unless the speech is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce um, such action. So that's kind of, um, but that's the crux of Smith's um, complaint. Now, he may have something we don't know about. And, and Turley, you know, said that. He may have something, some evidence or, or some sort of um, charge that nobody sees coming, but it looks to Turley like this charge is to implicate Trump in, you know, not just um, not not just speaking about violent behavior, but 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 almost brainwashing people into believing uh, this is the right thing to do. But when I read uh, the Brandenburg decision, it's going to be hard to implicate Trump in that. I mean, it's, it's too ambiguous here. And if I'm not mistaken, you're innocent to proven guilty. I think that's still the standard. <laughs> Supposed to be. Well, we, would, we would hope that's still the standard. Maybe Trump's mm. the exception here, <laughs> innocent till proven guilty. Um, I mean, it, it, strengthens, it strengthens him in the primary, no doubt about it. What does it do in a general? I, I don't know. And, I don't, and they still, of course, the, the sham committee that investigated this in the Congress, um, did they not leave out the parts where he said peacefully and patriotically, sure. make your voices heard? And I would imagine if Smith is going to try is, him for insurrection, and disqualify him from elected office, they'll have to include everything in his context. Uh, you don't want a grand jury because exculpatory information does not have to be uh, presented. Take uh, 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. Full disclosure, you don't have to twist my arm to get me to express my opinion on conspiracy theories. <laughs> I am a conservative radio show host in good old South Carolina. We are ripe for conspiracy theories in, in this think? lane. And we've had a, I mean, I think we've had a fair debate on COVID, on some of the um, social distancing, what worked, some of the vaccines, what worked. Um, our belief here, I think, is, I don't want to speak for everyone, but we've never honestly debated or done a postmortem on what did work, what didn't work. Businesses were um, ravaged with $6.3 billion, excuse me, trillion dollars in new currency or liquidity injected into the economy, but if you go to the extreme end, if you go to the Towns Van Zant Blaze Foley end of the conspiracy theories, there's some that believe it was engineered as a bioweapon. I'm not saying I believe that. I'm not saying I don't believe that. I think there's fair discussion to be had relating to that. But as a conservative Republican radio show host in South Carolina, I'm damn sure going to take advantage of an opportunity if someone uh, has that, not as an opinion, but as something on the table. We have with us this morning a healthcare thought leader, author of the book, The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. Um, I mean, basically offering bold visions on how to radically improve uh, the availability and affordability of healthcare, which should be something all of us are interested in. Todd Furness. Todd, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you today? I am doing well. So, so I mean, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to ask the question. I'll be more respectful. I'm not going to say, was COVID-19 engineered as a bioweapon? But should that be considered, and why? Well, I think we certainly need to understand the origins of COVID, and it remains unclear. And every time a report that comes out asserts that it may have been engineered uh, genetically, uh, 
it seems to me like a lot of folks scramble to assert that it's not. And that's what's really troubling is you can't get any confidence. And the nation right now, our nation right now, is terribly concerned about confidence in institutions. And I'll give an example. So this report came out, said that uh, by, by a virologist out of Wuhan, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is where all this stuff allegedly started. And he asserted uh, that, in fact, it may have been engineered as a bioweapon. Well, then what happens, it's reported in a variety of uh, publications, the Jerusalem Times, the Economic Times, a few others, but no, none of the big U.S. media companies pick it up. The uh, New York Times instead runs a story from the, the uh, director of national intelligence who just recently declassified a study and said, we have no indications of the origin and that we don't have any belief that it was genetically engineered. So there are two things. One, we need to know as a nation where this started, who started it, how it got funded, where, what, who was involved in it. But, this, but secondly, I think that we also have a cultural issue, which was we need to rebuild confidence in our institutions because without that, the next time this happens, everybody's going to be immensely skeptical. So, so Todd, what would be – I mean, the, the majority of Americans don't understand bioscience. I mean, I don't understand what it takes to make a vaccine. I mean, I've tried to understand Robert Malone and mRNA vaccines and some of the science. That te- yeah, I, I, but but, but the, average, the, the average American does not have a grasp of, you know, it, it, is it a bioweapon? Was it, was it some sort of a wet market event that happened in but, – but, but you say we need to trust our government – but but certainly we have to have some grasp or understanding uh, of what they're asserting and, and why they're not. In other words, if I'm watching a football game and the referee says this guy held, I have an understanding of that. I mean, it's not that complicated whether he held or not. But but in, in the field of vaccines and mRNA, how are we to equip ourselves to have some at least elementary understanding of who's shooting the straight and who's not? Well, I think that's a great question, and it goes back. My concern is not not just government, but everybody. I mean, all of the other, what I'm broadly calling institutions. I consider the media an institution, and you can, can, can I interrupt? Is, is Big Pharma is Big Pharma an institution? Is that is that fair to label Big Pharma as an institution? You can make that argument, and you can call it an industry or an institution, but. Institutions typically have a little bit of different standing in the in the minds of the listener. And your point is spot on, which is meaning that we need to have a better understanding of what's going on. Think about it this way. Some folks in a foreign country have some building blocks. They built something that does potentially bad things. And those bad things had a tremendous ripple effect across the entire globe. And people died as a result of that. And so the question is, who did, who, who created those building blocks? And who funded it? And what was the original intent and application of it? And how are we going to deal with it? And then my concern is that the way that the United States is dealing with it has been really, really poor. We don't trust each other. We don't trust our government. And there are a lot of people who are very, very skeptical and cynical who have only been uh, increasingly concerned as a result. I spent about 12, 13 years as an elected official. I learned in that former career that money's the answer. Now, what's the question? So let's argue that Big Pharma is not an institution, but they certainly have a motivation to affect institutions to create a narrative that may or may not be true. Is that fair criticism? Yes. And how do we stop that? I mean, once the American public becomes so skeptical, 
how do we in, reinstill trust? In other words, if you've got half the country who are debating whether we're not debating whether social distancing worked or not, or whether we should have printed six point three trillion dollars in liquidity or not, we're de- we're debating on whether the government was involved in potentially exploring bioscience and or bioweaponry, and now we're lying to us about it. I mean, that that's a pretty big leap, isn't it? Well, this is the concern. And first of all, thank you for your public service because we don't have enough smart people out there doing the work. But the second thing is, is that, yeah, we ought to always be skeptical of government because government has a monopoly on power. And that's always troubling is when people get you know, unrestrained power, then you know, there's an opportunity for bad things to occur. And we have plenty of examples of that, including in, and specifically in healthcare. So this is not a new phenomenon. But we, the thing that's troubling to me is we don't have anybody who, has, who, who took those positions who's evidencing any contrition whatsoever. Nobody said, hey, you know, I'm sorry for all the things that we told you you had to do that didn't work. That's very interesting. Todd, thank you for your time, but very well explained. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you so much for your time. You know, and, and I do believe that there, there is great value there. I mean, there, there is no doubt we were lied to. Now, now th- th- there's, you know, was it intentionally? I think it was because I ascribe to the theory of money's the answer. Now, what's the question? And I, th- I think the one interesting thing Todd said is the institution of government has power. They have authority. Um, that power can or cannot be corrupted. In other words, if big pharma comes to the government and says, the best thing to do is mandate a vaccine. Somebody in the government has to say, no, we're not mandating a vaccine. I mean, we think Pfizer's a reputable company. We think Johnson & Johnson's a reputable company. We think Moderna's a reputable company. But we're not, we're not authorizing, we're not in the name of government and its authority and power going to mandate or demand of average Americans to get vaccinated when we don't know we don't have enough studies on it. We don't have enough research done in regards to this. And I think in the in the healthcare market, I mean, I think Todd would be a really good podcast guest for an extended conversation about the influence money and corruption has in the healthcare sector because the the COVID vaccine didn't come from the auto industry. I mean, it didn't come from from finance. I mean, it would be finance related with BlackRock and Vanguard and some of these other investment companies that do, um, you know, allow. Uh, the, the influx of capital to some of these uh, big pharma companies. But I think most interesting to this is, you know, the, 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 the concept of big pharma being an institution, big finance being an institution. I think we all understand that government is an institution. Um, Francis Marion University is an institution. University of, of South Carolina is an institution. I think we've got to begin looking at Vanguard and BlackRock as institutions and big pharma as an institution, and uh, the insurance economy, the insurance sector, it's an institution, and it, and it draws its power and authority um, not from making better products, but from encouraging the government to be complicit in uh, what whatever activities we choose. But when I saw this, and, and look, I don't have any idea if COVID-19 was engineered as a bioweapon, but, but, but I do know that the people we trusted to tell us the truth didn't tell us the truth. And if the people we trust to tell us the truth don't tell us the truth on social distancing or lockdowns or masks or, or this medicine works or not, why wouldn't you put on the table that COVID was indeed 
some sort of experiment in bioweaponry that went bad. I mean, that's got to be on, on these people are not to be trusted. That they've decided that your trust in them uh, is not as important as, you know, the power, authority, and profitability of the cabal they're involved in. But that's what they've decided. We didn't decide that. I mean, I mean, Fauci could come clean. Fauci could stand before the American public today and say, look, in that moment, I did the best I could, but it's obvious we got a lot of things wrong. The, the, the next question would be, okay, Dr. Fauci, if we got all these things wrong and you're an expert, why? How could an expert like you be that wrong? I mean, did, did, did somebody pay to misguide you? What Was there some sort of um, financial arrangement that made it easier for you to say something you knew that was not the truth? I believe this. I believe if you incentivize anybody to be dishonest, they will. I don't think people are fun. I mean, I think people are fundamentally dishonest. I think Tucker Carlson explained it real well when Tucker said, you know, I think I'm an honest guy, but but to put in the wrong circumstance, I'm sure I could tell an untruth. I mean, he's talking about, you know, I mean, if, if something in my life would happen unexpectedly and I get called to the car, but I can, of course, I mean, I can see myself easily trying to lie my way out of it. But, but I think when you incentivize people and they gain financially by being fundamentally dishonest, they're far more likely to do it. If, if there's no payday being honest and no payday being dishonest, I think there's a much better chance that people shoot one another straight. I think if Fauci, you know, if, if Fauci's not paid or if the, you know, CDC's not signing contracts with Big Pharma and they're up patents and copyrights and, and, and all these other research grants that are, that are given, it's far more likely that you get a straight answer from Fauci. But, but the next thing you know, that there's a lot of reasons to be dishonest. I mean, there, there are a lot of zeros behind the checks, and, and I just think that's what happened. Now, once again, I'm not declaring the COVID vaccine or COVID as a bioweapon. I don't have any idea. That's so far above my pay grade, it's unimaginable. But I can very well understand, tell the truth and get nothing, tell a lie and get financially compensated. Most of us would, would be inclined to kind of stretch the truth. Well, I can, I can think of, and what comes to my mind is some of those hearings with Rand Paul questioning Dr. Fauci. Come to find out there may have been some commissions and kickbacks or whatever you'd call them. And once again, money's the answer. But money's the answer now. What's the question? And once again, I think when you ask someone a question, separate of some sort of financial gain, you're more likely to get a straight answer. But but if, but if but we didn't do that. I mean, we, we you know, there was a lot of reasons for health experts or medical experts to be dishonest, and they did. Let's go to the phone. Breeze. Good morning. Hey, what's up, guys? Let me go ahead and tee this up for you, kid, before my next client. Rudd, uh, Trump could have caused a violent insurrection as he wanted to, if he wanted to. He could have had all the guns there he wanted. But let's get back to the COVID thing, guys. Absolutely, 100% positively, a biological weapon. It was daggled. A lot of countries involved with it, especially us. And it was the perfect weapon, and it accomplished everything they wanted, and it is still accomplishing everything they wanted. You look at everything that COVID accomplished, and you have got the perfect weapon. You can take an hour and a half, kid, to write down on a sheet, sheet of paper. What did COVID accomplish as a weapon? Well, it got look look what it did to the. Uh, you got Biden presidency. You got people talking about fiat currency. You got all the stuff going on with the guys, kids mutilating themselves. You got corrupt, I mean, corruption on top of corruption on top of corruption. Billionaires becoming quadruple billionaires. 
everything that they wanted to have happen with COVID happened. It was the perfect weapon. So that's not an accident, brother. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. And it's hard to not talk about that in those sorts of ways. It, 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 there's, I mean, I'm thinking about decent people, really decent men and women who share their opinions with me. And I'm talking about, you know, half these people in the medical field. And, and they were lecturing to me. I, I've, I've said this a hundred times, but I still go back to it because it's such an interesting part of the human experiment. I mean, I had, you know, I'm not an expert. I've never professed to be an expert. We, we've got an audience. Rev and I have done a pretty good job over the last 11 years of gaining a little bit of street cred with a universe of people who care what we say and like to interact accordingly. COVID hits. We are very standoffish in encouraging or discouraging. We were not in a referendum. We've not been on some of the other issues. I mean, we have taken sides in political debates. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Not every political debate, but there's some out there that I have or I feel I have such a clarity of understanding of, of, of what it's going to do if we do this or don't do that, that I do offer up, uh, you know, my very aggressive opinion and encourage others to kind of, you know, heed my advice here. I mean, trust me here. Don't trust me on a lot of these other things because I don't know much, but trust me here. This is an issue relating to local government or state government, and I think I understand the pitfalls and or the, or the advantages. So, so we try to talk you into or out of. When COVID hit and I was requested to encourage people to go get vaccinated, and I said, man, I'm not doing that. I mean, there's no way in this world that I would ever encourage someone to inject medicine in their body or not. That is far, far out of my range of authority. I don't have, uh, you know, I don't have any interest in it to begin with, and I certainly don't have any expertise. And these medical trained experts, these medically trained experts kind of leaned on me. You're doing a disservice. You're being reckless and careless. Uh, You're derelict in your duty to inform the masses. It's clear. I mean, it's, there's no doubt about it that people are better off having uh, been vaccinated. And I think at some point in time, Rev and I agreed. Uh, I told Rev one day, I said, Rev, I, I'm comfortable telling somebody with a comorbidity over the age of 60, they're probably better off going to get a vaccine. And I think we may have done that. Now, I don't know how many of you take my advice. I mean, don't. On this issue, be very careful with what I'm saying. But I'd studied enough. And, and talked to enough people that I trusted, that I didn't believe were motivated by, by something other than doing right. I mean, I remember saying well, for a week or two or three, hey, man, I, I, I think if you're over the age of 60 and you've got some sort of medical complication, you've got a comorbid, I mean, you're, you're probably better off going to get the vaccine. If you're under the age of 60 and healthy, it's a toss-up. If you're under the age of 30 and healthy, don't do it. Just don't do it. I mean, I think the risk out, you know, outweigh um, the gain. Well, I think that's about where we've landed. I think the post-mortem, I mean, you know, the media won't report on this because it contradicts the kind of the narrative that we're pre-selling uh, to the American public. And the to, to me, the most interesting point of COVID, it's not the medical science. It's the human nature in people who are that willing to acquiesce, that willing to give in, that willing to shut their business down, that willing to stop living their lives, that willing now under threat of government. I mean, you know, so I mean, government's mighty punitive. And it has, once again, almost unlimited authority 
and power and influence. So when the government sells a hairdresser, my wife, you know, don't go to work, uh, what is she to do? I mean, that's a big chance. You know, when the government tells a restaurant owner to not open his restaurant, well, what does that restaurant owner to do? But it reshaped the narrative. And, and I think when you look at Trump's, you know, um, second run of the presidency, I think at the core of that is the skepticism people have of government. It's not about the 2020 election, excuse me, the 20, yeah, the 2020 election, as much as it is what government was willing to do. It doesn't surprise me that there's a precinct hustler in Philadelphia getting paid 10 bucks a ballot. I mean, I've known that forever. And you're a damn fool if you don't believe that happens. I'm sorry. I mean, if you don't believe there's some hustler in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia um, hustling up ballots that don't exist and voters that may or may not know they're voting and they're getting compensated, you know, 10 grand, I mean, excuse me, $10, 50, whatever that number is. It was more because of Zuckerberg uh, this past time. That's why you motivate. Pay $10 a ballot, you get X ballots. Pay somebody 50 bucks a ballot, you get more. People are motivated. I mean, they, they normally react. Uh, you know, it's not what Charles Barkley say is not the money, but rather how much money. Well, I mean, it was a lot of money in play here. But I still, I mean, I'm not surprised by that. I mean, I'm not surprised that people in Philadelphia did things they probably shouldn't have done. I am unbelievably surprised at the percentage of Americans who just blindly and, and you know, willingly followed some bureaucrat like Fauci, who we always felt was motivated by something other than telling people this is the right thing to do because this is um, the right thing to do. So I think we're still living. I think the 2024 presidential election is still a post-COVID election. I mean, there's still a suspicion people have of the government. Will they express that with a vote for Trump? I think a lot will. Enough? I don't know. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. We're still talking about COVID. This is a day dedicated for... Um, I mean, I think the majority of conversations today will be about Biden and Trump. Um, Jack Smith sent Trump a letter Sunday night, um, a letter of, I guess, notification uh, to appear before. I mean, Trump's not going before a grand jury. I mean, he'd be a moron to go before a grand jury. Um, but he'll be indicted probably within the next week or so. Another indictment, um, you know, that'll play itself out. Uh, it looks to me like, Ray, they're angling for some sort of um, insurrection charge or inciting an insurrection that could, I mean, if there's, you know, if you look at the 14th Amendment, that could prohibit um, Trump from running. I mean, I'm not saying that's where they're headed, but but that's something you have to put on, on the table as an option or an alternative. Um, and the other story, of course, is Whistleblower Wednesday. Um, <laughs> Gary Shapley and, uh, you know, Whistleblower X will appear. I think that person will be made public at some point in time today. But those are the two stories that I think um, we need to pay closest attention to. Uh, I mean, obviously, COVID's always there. The rest and residue of COVID is always interesting. Uh, the postmortem that the media refuses to do. Rev was talking about, you know, when you said something about, I think the way you said it was very, I mean, articulate when you said, you know, that there were days that certain people wanted to question that this predetermined narrative of what happened in the wet market. I mean, even if it was an honest question, here was my point. I think we, I guess we were talking about it uh, during the break, but talking about trusting government about COVID. If you were wanting to ask the honest question, because the narrative was this came from a wet market, a transfer from a bat to a person, whatever. 
Um, but there was other evidence that says, hey, this this may have honestly just been a mistake in a lab where they were doing some experimentation and it got out. And if you ask that question in an honest fashion, you were shut down. They didn't want to hear it. And if you had a loud enough voice, they deplatformed you off of the social media. So you couldn't even ask the question. And does not does that not feed into the trust of government? Okay, question? Let, let's stay there because once again, we, we got a graph. I mean, we don't, but we do. We got a graph of Trump's, uh, you know, uh, ascending in politics, and we've got a graph of what would be the one, what would be the one issue that would would keep Trump alive and well. I mean, Trump's done everything he can to end his political career, and he can't. I mean, it's almost like the guy that tries to commit suicide, he can't. You know what I mean? I jumped off a bridge. I took a mouthful of, I mean, I took a handful of cyanide. I mean, I'm still alive. I mean, I'm, you know, I got all these issues, deformities because of it, but I just can't. I mean, I'm so bad at that. You know, Trump has done everything in his power. We talked earlier about um, Georgia. I talked to someone yesterday, not named Robert Cahaley, at the national level, who told me that Kemp is kind of trying to, let's get the band back together, so to speak. And some of the Kemp voters in Georgia, I mean, they're like, no, I'm not doing that. Do you not remember what this guy said and did about you? Um, same thing in Arizona, same thing in Virginia. Virginia's less um, consequential because it's not a swing state. I mean, it, it, I think Virginia's blue. Uh, you got too many bureaucrats and government workers that are going to vote for defense contractors that live in the northern Virginia that are going to vote for, for Trump. Um, but but uh, the one thing that I think keeps Trump alive and healthy and vibrant and, um, you know, a, a likely candidate to win the presidency is the skepticism people have of government. I mean, he, he's kind of a symbol of that. The more skeptical people become of their government, the more likely it is Trump wins um, the election. It's not, this is not, and I want to talk to Drew tomorrow about this because I think Drew McKissick could give us um, keen insight. I believe personally that the election of 2024, probably six and eight, will be an election less of policy and more strategy. How do I strategically get more people to vote in Arizona? They're not voting on policy. How do I find the people in Arizona, in Nevada, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia? How do I find those people who are highly skeptical of what government says to be true? And how do I get those people to the poll? I mean, the, 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 it's not uh, how many conservatives do I find? How, how many um, neoconservatives do I find? How many anti globalists do I find? I think the strategy, if I'm a Republican operative, how many people do I believe are skeptical of the government? Because Trump's going to get the highest percentage of that that he is anybody. I mean, you know, people call Trump an anti-war president. Tucker kind of believes that that's the target. I mean, that's the epicenter. I, I, you know, I, I'll buy into that because there's so much money at stake. I mean, a trillion dollars annual appropriations. I mean, if, if you're one in that small universe fighting over a trillion dollars to supply the, you know, the national defense, to what is it, the national defense appropriations uh, bill? Uh, you know, th- there's so much money to be made in that sector, in that very niche sector of the economy. It's important. I mean, there's no doubt that national security is very, very important. The funding of our military, critically important, but but it's a trillion dollars a year that they divvy up. Money's the answer now. What's the question? Um, you know, and if Trump appears to be not in tune with American imperialism or, or the, the, uh, the exporting of democracy, He's a threat to them. This guy's not on board 
with a trillion dollar allocation we can depend on annually. See, guys, a trillion. I mean, think. I mean, I think it's unfathomable. I mean, I really believe. I mean, I know I do, and I think all of us have a hard time grasping. So there are people in Ogden, Utah, and you know, I mean, the, the majority of politicking is in Washington, but in some of these other states, you've got defense contractors that manufacture. Uh, you know, the javelin and, the you know, the tomahawk and, you know, this is outdated. Now they've got this new missile, this new um, technology, this new that, this new this. We know about some of it and we don't know about others. Very often we find out, you know, when we're using that. Uh, remember some of the, the, I'd never heard of cluster bombs. I mean, I didn't know we had bombs that bury themselves in the dirt. Then they detonate after about, I mean, I, I'd never heard of that until the, the Iraq war and some of the, the struggles in the Middle East. And so, so but, but, but a trillion seconds ago was 33,000 years. I mean, a trillion seconds is nearly 33,000 years. We're going to appropriate roughly a trillion dollars this year, next year, the year after that. And people in that business share in the largesse of that, of that money. And that's, I mean, that's a highly motivating force. And, and Trump, all of a sudden, what, what if Trump, I mean, I've never heard Trump say this, but what if Trump said, I think we can adequately defend America and have a presence in the world for $500 billion a year. And we're running a trillion dollar deficit. I understand percentage of GDP. I've heard that argument from people in the military. Uh, fair enough. I mean, I get it. You know, we were spending 5% of GDP. Now we're spending 3%. I guess they're asking for an increase in military spending, but it's not a one-time expenditure. We don't tell the defense contractors, hey, here's a trillion bucks. Don't come see us for another 33,000 years. No, here's a trillion, <laughs> and there's another trillion coming uh, the next year. And the next thing you know, waste, fraud, and abuse become so prevalent because nobody's really keeping up with what. See, I don't believe that if you question the defense budget, you're unpatriotic. I think the most patriotic thing to do is question uh, the defense budget. Tucker makes the argument that that is the epicenter. I mean, that, the, you know, we got to get rid of this guy. He's got to go to jail. He's got to be defeated. He's got to be banished from the body politic because he is a genuine threat to that gravy train. He is genuinely, legitimately convincing people that America doesn't need to be the world's police. More convincing than anybody ever has. And at the other end of that America doesn't have to be the world's police is a $500 billion defense budget instead of a trillion-dollar defense budget and that's $500 billion that isn't getting divvied up between lobbyists and consultants and CEOs and, and defense contracting employees. Now, now, I believe that the epicenter of, of Trump is the skepticism, which feeds into that, to that trillion dollar a year. I mean, I'm skeptical as to whether we need to spend, I think it's $861 billion. It'll be over $900 billion next year. Um, so, I mean, I'm rounding off here. What's $100 billion? But it, it, it's in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars a year. Not not that we're giving old people to stay retired. Not not that we're spending on health care for seniors. I mean, those are trillion dollar line items, roughly one trillion dollar line items. Not that we're spending health care. I mean, you know, th these people are de providing a national defense and we're spending a trillion dollars a year. I'm skeptical as to whether we need to be spending a trillion dollars a year. I'm skeptical about whether we need all these bases all over the world. And I think we moved, what, 30,000 or was it 3,000? I mean, I think we deployed some men to Europe. 
some some soldiers, some troops. I mean, some real people. I'm not talking about javelin missiles and, and F-16s. We moved some ladies and gentlemen to the European theater in the last 10 or 12 days. Um, that concerns me. That that really alarms me. All this NATO talk. I, mean, I find that deeply, deeply, deeply concerning because I personally think NATO is kind of an anti-Russia organization. But it doesn't make me naive to the dangers of the world. It doesn't make me an isolationist. Now, to Rev's point, when you can't debate it and someone has unlimited abilities to call me an isolationist and I don't have a forum to respond, that, that all of a sudden many Americans believe that I'm an isolationist and I have the mindset of an isolationist because we're not allowed uh, to have this debate. And that's why people have become unbelievably skeptical of the government. And I don't know the answer to this. But I think it's the preeminent question, what happens to a country when its government loses its moral authority? I mean, where does a nation go when more people don't trust what the government says to an extreme than do? But there's always been this healthy suspicion that government has with business, business has with government, uh, the citizenry have with government, the, the citizenry have with, with business, but it's not extreme. And I think we're getting to a place in America where about 50% of its people are extremely skeptical of the government. What what happens when when that becomes so prevalent? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I know it's a powder keg, and I know it creates controversy and chaos and and inconsistencies. Uh, But, but, but you know, I think Trump is the embodiment of that. But I I do think he is an anti-war president. And I do think people oppose him because they have a vested and financial interest in the war machine. But but I, I do believe that the other driver in all of this, keeping Trump alive and well and competitive, is how skeptical people are of government. And, and you know, that they tend to be doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down instead of um, accepting that people don't trust them. What do we do the game? I mean, do you really believe? Now, I'm not saying they care or not. But do you really believe that the way to gain the trust of the American people is to indict Donald Trump again? But this is what they do in banana republics. I mean, you indict and arrest and incarcerate your political foes. And I mean, there's another one coming in Georgia. I mean, rest assured, uh, Fannie Willis, I think is her name. She's the district attorney in Georgia. She's going to indict Donald Trump on some sort of charge. Uh, you know, trying to bribe a government official into finding votes. In the, um, I mean, it'll be taken out of context. Now, the beauty of a trial, and this may validate Trump a little more, in a trial, Trump will get a fair shake. I mean, maybe not with a jury, maybe not with a judge. He may be to get, get a better than fair shake with the judge, a, a better than fair shake with the jury, depending on where uh, the trial's being held. But he will get a chance, to your point, Reb, to tell the other side of the story. MSNBC won't run the courtroom. The New York Times won't run the courtroom. George Stephanopoulos won't be, you know, one of the, one of the um, I guess, convicting forces here. Trump will be a, allowed to play his speech January 6th in its entirety. I mean, I, I'll bet you 60% of Americans have never heard the word peacefully come out of Donald Trump's mouth. Now, but the people that have determined yeah. he incited an insurrection I'll bet you, I'll bet you 80% of the people that have decided Donald Trump incited an insurrection have never heard Donald Trump say in that same speech that they think he's largely responsible for inciting an insurrection. They never heard the word peaceful when he says 
Let's peacefully go to the Capitol and let's tell them, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, how frustrated we really are. Let's peacefully go to the Capitol. What percentage of Americans have never heard that excerpt of that speech? Of the 60%, it's probably 80 of those who have never heard Donald Trump. Does it change your mind? I mean, do you think differently of Trump if you hear that speech in its entirety? I don't know the answer to that, but I think that information will be made available to the public, whomever is interested. Now, the Seinfeld watcher, he's still watching Seinfeld. She's still watching um, Seinfeld. But but the consumer of, you know, political news and, and you know, someone who enjoys a good um, fracas on the political <laughs> front, they'll, you know, they'll, I don't know if it moves the meter. I don't know if it changes minds. I mean, that's why I don't think Trump can be beat in the primary. I mean, if he's 37 in New Hampshire, he's 37 in Iowa, what about Trump gets him to 31 or 2? I mean, you can't ding him any more than he's been dinged. And his numbers are still in the upper 30s with Republican primary voters. And I just don't know how you catch a guy. I mean, he's indicted once a week. <laughs> you know, and, and his numbers stay solidly, solidly at about 40%. Now, the national number is 50%, but that includes a 75% number in South Carolina, an 85% number in Wyoming. When you get to some of the contested primary states, he's probably closer to 40. I think the latest number I saw in Iowa was 37, in New Hampshire's 37. But name another Republican with a chance in Hades of getting in the mid-30s. It, it, it's, it's inconceivable to me. But, you know, I'm not boots on the ground in Iowa, New Hampshire. I guess I am in South Carolina. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. I think the president took a nap yesterday. Um, in the middle of talking. In the middle of giving some remarks to, I mean, he and the uh, Israeli, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Israeli president Herzog, I mean, they, they met yesterday and um, <laughs> Biden had some prepared remarks and kind of, I don't know, mumbled through them. He may have dozed off. I mean, he may have, you could I mean, believe he, he may have, um, he may have dozed off. And I think it's kind of interesting when Herzog goes, I can't understand you. I mean, they didn't say that, but the, the look at his face kind is like, looked, yeah. I don't understand much of what, of what you're saying at all. We think we've got, um, Eben Brown lined up here in just a couple of minutes. There's kind of a movement in America today. I, I don't know how much I buy into this, but historically when you're running for office and you're running in a general election, you try to convince people you're pragmatic, you're independent thinking, you're not, you know, I've heard uh, Gresham Barrett was a good friend of mine and Gresham was in Congress and Gresham would ride to Washington occasionally. I think they would fly to Charlotte and uh, Heath Shuler from Tennessee would be on the flight with Gresham and Gresham would tell me that they'd ride to Washington and they would talk about things in general and they find out, you know, they, they kind of agreed on a lot of these things, and Gresham would tell me that Congressman Barrett, I'm sorry, would get to Washington, and Heath would take off this way, and he would take off that way, and they would both get their laminated cards of how to vote this week, and uh, you wanted to be careful not to get primaried and whatnot, that there's always been a belief that uh, the the binary choice, the duopoly, uh, you know, was not serving the American people, and we needed more pragmatic, independent thinking, um, I guess independence by uh, by definition involved, and there's always been, you know, a, a group or two or three to kind of put forth that as an alternative. 
this election cycle is no different. Uh, when you look at the the number of Americans who'd rather not see a rematch between you know Joe Biden and Donald Trump, it would stand to reason that something like no labels would uh, would begin making their case as a third party uh, presidential bid. I think the one thing you underestimate, and I guess I did to some degree when I got into politics, is the infrastructure necessary to win elections, especially at the national level. I mean, don't underestimate the DNC. Don't underestimate the RNC. Don't underestimate all the activist organizations that have been bred out of uh, those two parties who have been in charge for a long, long, long time. Joe Manchin is one of the Democrats I find most interesting because when Jim Justice announced he's a candidate for Senate in West Virginia, Manchin's um, political life took a big a big hit. So now he's kind of the um, I don't know the, the he's one, one of the central figures in no labels. Fox News Radio's Evan Brown is with us. Evan, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. So my my simple question is: Is now a better time than ever for a third party to find its way in the upcoming election? I you know there's there's always this um, uh, desire I think um, among an, a number of Americans to see a third party presidential candidate have some kind of real chance. Uh, historically, third party candidates that are viable tend to negatively impact Republicans. I think the best example of that is Ross Perot. Uh, the, uh, the the going knowledge is that if Ross Perot hadn't run in '92, George H. W. Bush would have been a two term president. Uh, Bill Clinton never would have left Little Rock. Hillary Clinton never would have left Little Rock, for that matter. <laughs> um, and and so uh, it, there is a. Uh, I, I think that uh, normally the 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 infighting nature of people on the right tends to make uh, uh, third party right wing candidates uh, not so viable uh, or, or more spoilers, I would say. Whereas on the left, uh, the third party candidate finds a way to uh, uh, fold into the Democratic. Uh, machine, if you will. I think Bernie Sanders is the great example of that. He is an independent. He is not actually a Democrat, uh, but he, uh, in his two presidential runs, uh, ran as a Democrat uh, and um, was able to advocate for his positions within the Democratic Party. He's, you know, we could talk about the so-called squad and whatnot, but I think the the biggest force pushing the Democratic Party left uh, over the past, uh, let's call it six years, has been Bernie Sanders' presidential runs. Uh, he has shown that the far left of the party is a considerable voting block that Democrats need to, uh, you know, as Democrats have abandoned the center uh, and center right of the country, they have had to appeal to that Bernie Sanders voter, that uh, that far left voter. Uh, and uh, I think without Bernie Sanders, you know, the, the, the squad would would be much more powerless uh, uh, than anything. But uh uh, in, in terms of, uh, of Joe Manchin and John Huntsman Jr., who have been headlining these no-label events, um, you know, Joe Manchin, I think, is the, uh, the one that got away for most Republicans. They, they tend to pine after his approval in the U.S. Senate in terms of uh, them, uh, him joining their legislative efforts. He's often been a, a disappointment to them where it really counts. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know uh, you, you know necessarily why you you've talked about the, uh, the the need to fall in line with the party otherwise feel the party's wrath at re-election time uh, but uh, Joe Manchin has always been a, a sort of a safe bet in in West Virginia in terms of getting re-elected except for now 
uh, where uh, Jim Justice is perhaps maybe more popular than he is and actually stands a chance at beating him in a general election. Uh, and maybe the Democratic Party is not necessarily uh, all that warm to, to uh, someone like uh, Joe Manchin anymore. And so maybe he's looking for his next gig. Uh, the same could be said with uh, John Huntsman as well, who has sort of fallen out of part, out, out of, uh, you know, the good graces of the dominating MAGA factor of the Republican Party. So, uh, you know, maybe they're trying to do this altruistically. Maybe they're they're trying to find employment. <laughs> you know, it's either either and both could be true. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I would imagine a political candidate being opportunistic is not surprising to someone <laughs> like Evan Brown, nor is it surprising at all to someone like yours truly thank you evan appreciate your time you that's kind of an interesting and i think mansion's hand is forced here i mean he's in a state that was carried by trump uh, in 16 and 20 overwhelmingly it's a conservative state he's kind of an outlier somewhat of an anomaly and being able to win in west virginia uh, has proposed himself as a centrist moderate pro-energy pro-fossil fuel um uh, democrat but Jim Justice is a is a, a legitimate contender. He's sitting governor in West Virginia. Um, can self fund if he so chooses in a state um, like West Virginia. I think it's interesting um, what the MAGA movement, in Evans' words, have forced others to consider. I mean, I really and truly uh, believe this. And you know, I was, once again, I spoke with someone yesterday, not named Robert Cahaley, but but operates at the national level. And we began trying to discern um, the problem that MAGA and I call it America first because I think MAGA is more related to Trump. I think America first is generic in in nature. And I'm more comfortable saying I'm an America firster. I mean, I, I'm not a MAGA Republican. I mean, the MAGA Republican is, uh, you know, I'm kind of um, this is all about Trump to me. This is not about Trump as far as I'm concerned. But obviously it largely involves Trump without question. But, but I want to see a sustainable political movement um, create policies and, and you know, chair committees. And, I mean, I want J.D. Vance to one day be a presidential candidate. I mean, that's how ambitious I am. I mean, if you asked me, uh, when do we know we've sustained a political movement? In other words, when do we know that we have staying power, so to speak? That is when a J.D. Vance is a serious contender to be president of the, uh, of the United States because Trump's a, a, a political unicorn. I mean, you can't duplicate. You can't replicate uh, what he's done. Half the country doesn't want to replicate or duplicate, and the other half of the country are just fine with that. But but as you uh, – I, I want to try to get Drew to, to go here with me tomorrow about what what are what are the forces or who are the forces? It would be better what are the forces. You know, who wouldn't matter? But, but what forces are, are being deployed to create synergies between America first and what I'll call mainstream Republican. I mean that—that's the secret question, guys. I mean that—you know—that's the only question that matters. I mean it really and truly. If it's Trump, how many mainstream, um, what what I'll call uh, establishment Republicans show up and vote for Trump? They don't like him. I get it, but but you got to have them to win. Um, flip the flip the coin and say if DeSantis wins, or let's say Haley. I mean let's go far to the extreme of an establishment, Mike Pence or Nikki Haley would fit that better. So if Haley or Pence win, they're not. But if they were, hypothetically, how do we get um, the America Firsters to come back and say, okay. And and here's what I think the America Firster has to do. 
I think the American, and I'm one. I mean, I'm an America firster, unabashed, unapologetic. Do you draw a line between America firsters and, quote, mainstream Republicans? Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I don't think the mainstream Republican orthodoxy is America first. I think there's still an acceptance. I mean, I, I, I run into it every day. Um, I, I still think there's a belief that America first is a little too non-adventurist, a little too non-globalist, a little too um, on this kind of notion of, you know, American imperialism is bad. But yeah, I, I do believe uh, mainstream wouldn't be the right word. Establishment would be. But the establishment Republican here, the uh, the America firster here. I mean, obviously there's a lot of overlap, but there's some places that that they tend to disagree with one another and they, they, they appear to be non-negotiable. You're too much of a globalist. You're too much of an isolationist. You see where I'm headed? And those are big issues. I mean, those are, are macro issues. And, and, and the one thing I think the establishments need to understand that, and, and I, I go back to what I said earlier this week, and, and I think this is a pretty good articulation. The donor class runs the party. Historically, the, the, those who pay the big bills, those who make the large contributions, they're front of the line. I mean, we talked earlier about access and, and, you know, is government for sale or not? And if someone made a contribution to my political campaign, I always felt they deserved prioritized access. I didn't think they deserved preferential treatment, but they certainly deserved. I mean, they, you know, and you could say, well, I mean, so, so you put your office up for sale. No, I put access up for sale. I, I don't, I think people understand. I'm not saying they like it, but I think anybody, Josh, let me ask you a question. Uh, you're new to politics, but, but if, but if I'm Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina and Dave gives me $3,500 as a max contribution and you don't, and you and Dave Baker call needing to meet with me about something. And I say, Josh, it's going to be after I, after I meet with Dave. I mean, I got to meet with Dave first. You understand that? I mean, I mean I'm, I'm asking, do you understand that because he was a max contributor, he's going to get a meeting sooner than you do. Oh, 100%. Okay. I mean, so, so I don't think anybody's bothered. I mean, I, we don't like it and we would rather it not be the case, but I think everybody understands that. But, but if I, if I tell Josh, Josh, I can't do that because I'm doing this for Dave because Dave made a contribution. In other words, the contract, uh, at the office on aging can't go to you because you didn't make a contribution to Dave did. I mean, that, that's the, the second leg. I mean, that, that's when you really get, whoa, man. I mean, that, you know, cross the line yeah, I mean, that, that crosses the line w- without question there. What, what I, I think what, what the establishment Republicans need to understand is this is where the sentiment of the voters are. I mean, I, I, under, I understand that the establishment was okay with the donor class running the party. And, and that's okay for everybody as long as there are some uh, c- kind, of a, kind of a common trick. The donor class believes that this is the best way for America. And the majority of Republican voters believe this is the best way uh, or Amer- for America. But when that relationship becomes asymmetrical, you, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Once the majority of Republican primary voters become... Um, you know, I don't want to say non-interventionist and non-globalist because that's not every America firster. Let, let's say this, that the America first voter, not, not the donor, the America first voter believes that the party needs to look in the mirror and candidly assert whether it's had the interest of the public at heart or whether it's 
got involved in trade deals and and interventions. I'm talking about militarily uh, that that weren't in America's best interest. And and I, and I go back to this this asymmetric. I mean, it, if it's asymmetrical, if the donor class wishes the party to go in a direction that is not in the best interest of the American public, completely, completely and totally not in the best interest, that there has to be a shift. I mean, th- th- there's going to be some sort of political revolution. I'm not talking about muskets and bayonets, but, but there's going to be some kind of a bottom up, up you know, uh, kind of an uprising. And that's, that's kind of where we are. Now, now, you know, the establishment does not seem to be very interested in giving in, read the National Review, uh, read the Wall Street Journal, the establishment, I mean, they, they're well aware of how many America Firsters there are. I mean, the, the, the Wall Street Journal writes about it. I mean, they understand that these people are in the majority. I mean, they, there is no doubt about it. Um, this, um, this element of nationalism, this element of, you know, um, let's take care of America, and then we'll worry about Ukraine. Then we'll worry about Iraq and Iran. But, but we've got enough to say grace over here. And let's really focus and concentrate on on the government looking after the people who empower and employ the people within our government. But here's what America First has to do. And I would imagine, I mean, if if we're if 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 we gave a a poll question to our listeners, how many of you listening consider yourself establishment Republican, and how many consider yourself America First Republican? Uh, you're still on the same team, but we're not. I mean, we're just not on the same team right now. But, but I mean, our audience would probably be 75-25. I mean, I, I would imagine three of every four people listening to my voice who profess to be a Republican would identify, if they were forced to, identify as an establishment Republican or an America First Republican. 75% would say, I'm an America First Republican. Here's what America First has to do. You can't completely disrespect everything the establishment has done. But they built parties that, they, you know, I'm thinking about Thigpen, and I'm thinking about other folks. I mean, Roger Milliken, uh, you know, the great industrialist in the upstate. Um, I mean, he basically funded out of his own pocket. I mean, he would have been establishment Republican. Uh, Milliken might have been America first uh, before we knew what America first really was because he was all about trade and tariffs and Chinese manufacturing and textile mills and whatnot. But, but, but the point I'm trying to make is we are, we're, we're not just not collaborating. We're fighting against one another. We, we consider ourselves, I mean, the, the America first Republican considers the establishment Republican uh, kind of an equal ideological foe as Democrats. And the same thing with America firsters. So, so th- there's got to be some, I don't know, reconciling there. I mean, there has to be some, you know, um, we're on the same team. You want this guy to be the quarterback. I want that guy to be the quarterback. But eventually they're all wearing a tiger paw or a chicken on the side of their helmet, and they're our guy. You know, the coaches decide, I want this uh, wide receiver over that one. Uh, Clemson fans don't jump ship and start pulling for North Carolina or South Carolina. Same thing with, with the Gamecocks. I mean, you're still, uh, you're still a, you know, you're still a Republican. And, and, and that's, I mean, if we are united, we win in 2024. But I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, if, if America Firsters and establishment Republicans support the nominee, he wins. Not, not hands down and not without a brawl, but he will win the 2024 election because of the struggles Biden has. 
But, but if we don't, there's a pretty damn good chance we lose to a guy that can't complete a sentence. Uh, most Americans don't believe he's cognitively uh, alert enough to do the job. I mean, ima- I mean, imagine if you're a Republican and you allow this guy to get reelected because the establishment in America firsters disagreed with one another to the point of allowing that guy to get reelected. I mean, that, that, the absurdity of that. I mean, they, you're it, right. I mean, if you're one of those people, you're somewhat of an imbecile. I'm sorry. I mean, you just are. Let, let, let's now, now, once again, I think the America firster owes it to the establishment to respect what they've built. You don't have to admire it, but you've got to appreciate how many precinct meetings, how many organizational meetings have those Republicans gone to? Re- remember that the South historically was Democrat. I mean, not until recently have these Southern states, you know, become c- kind of safe havens for for Republican politics and Republican politicians. America First didn't build that. I mean, America First is kind of Johnny come lately to that. You're benefiting from a lot of the work done by, by people that you just believe lost their way. That's fair. You can believe they lost their way, but you still have to have some degree of respect and appreciation for the way they turned blue states into red. You didn't do it. So so when you come and try to disparage and tear apart everything they've done, that they're going to be offended and bothered by that. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Whistleblower Wednesday. <laughs> Sounds like we'll, a feature. Yeah, it does. Uh, Gary Shapley will appear before the House Oversight Committee, and Whistleblower X will appear after or with, I think it's appearing simultaneously with, with Shapley, Republicans and Democrats both will uh, will have at it when it comes to questioning these whistleblowers on what they know and what the accusations are. Well, there you go again. You got you got me thinking about something here. So, I consider myself an America firster. How, however, I got here, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, I've been a Republican voter for as long as I've been voting. Okay. Um. So, when when, when you talk about what you what you said in the last segment, I, I'm trying to. You know, be a little introspective here and say, how, how did we get here? How, how did, first of all, how did I become America first? You know, I don't consider that a hostile takeover. Number one, I just think it was sort of, a, for me, it's, it's very natural. And I think the base values are still the same. Um, but you do make a good point that if America first and mainstream Republicanism don't exactly line up, you know, could, is this movement considered a bit of a hostile takeover? And do America Firsters owe traditional mainstream Republican people that are still there that don't necessarily line up with America First? Do are they owed a bit of a bit more of respect and gratitude for the Republican well, I mean, it, infrastructure that's been built? Here's the point I'm trying Did to I make. Put that right. Yeah, you put it perfectly. It doesn't matter what you think you're owed. I mean, it doesn't matter what you think you owe someone. Politics is about math, and right now the Republican Party has a problem, and that is the America Firsters have not been able to reconcile whatever the differences are with the establishment-oriented Republican voter. That's where we are. Once again, whose fault is this? Who owes who an apology? I mean, sure, that matters, but at the end of the day, how do we get both factions to show up in November of 2024? I believe that you became uh, an America firster because of policy. I think, I think the, 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 the insider Republican, the establishment-oriented Republican, lost their way on trade, immigration, and China. 
I mean, you know, when someone said, what about Trump interested you? Well, I mean, I'm somewhat of a, a contrarian cynic anyway. So I would be naturally inclined to find Trump uh, kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, someone texted me when Trump announced, a good friend of mine moved off to Texas, texted me and said, hey, what, what's your opinion of Trump? And I said, I kind of like it. His one word response, shocker. You know, I mean, he, he expected me to like that. He expected someone, you know, with, with my makeup to, to kind of find him interesting. Hey, there's a way to really turn this thing on its head. Let, let's have fun with this. But, but I want to go back to the, the point you made. I'm not saying the America Firsters owe respect to, well, I mean, I guess I am in a weird way. I am saying when, when America Firsters vote in a Republican primary, that they're participating in something they had no hand in building. Now, there's some overlap there. I mean, there's some converts. There are a lot of uh, America Firsters who were establishment-oriented Republicans. But, but there's still some that, that paid a heavy price to build parties in states where they were not competitive. And I'm talking about over the last 30 or 35 years. I mean, we, we know how California turned from red to blue. Um, but, but, you know, the South turned from blue to red. But I mean, the South is overwhelmingly conservative Republican. You have a hell of a time winning a statewide seat in a Southern state. I mean, you just do. I'm not saying you can't happen, but, but if you're running as a Democrat statewide in a Southern state, odds are you lose. How did that happen? I mean, I, I think you, you, yes, there is a debt of gratitude that, that America firsters, and I'm talking about the new ones, the ones that didn't care about politics. And all of a sudden, they, try, they, they hear what Trump says about trade, what he says about immigration, what he says about China, and they say, yeah, that, that's my guy. That's my guy. So they walk into the auditorium, and, and they want to be a part of something. But, but you, you can't disrespect everything that has been done. When you walk into that auditorium to be a part of that Republican meeting, and there are 75 or 80 people there, and, and you're new to the meeting, I mean, do, do you buy everybody's stock and say, I run the company now? Or do you sit down at a table and say, hey, I want to be a part of this team? It, it, to, to me, it really doesn't matter who owes who an apology. There, there has to be a degree of respect given to those who built these um, parties in these southern states that have allowed Donald Trump to be. Trump didn't run as an America firster. What did he run as? I mean, is he an America first candidate for president or is he a Republican candidate for president? I mean, he's a Republican candidate for president. I like his view of the Republican Party. I do believe right. that the establishment were wrong on immigration, wrong on trade, wrong on China, but it's still the Republican Party. And there's been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears invested in that Republican Party. And I think when a, when a new Trump voter comes to the gymnasium to participate in that reorg meeting or whatever, that grassroots um, focus, yeah, they, they have to be, that they can't kick the door down and say, ah, oh, to establishment, you know, you, you guys have lost your way out of here. But there's got to be some attempt to reconcile these two factions or we don't win. I mean, I'll tell you this. The America Firsters can be stubborn and say Trump or nobody. The, the never Trumpers can be stubborn and say anybody but Trump. And Joe Biden gets back into the White House. And, 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 it, and it, it, there, there can't be a single Republican voter listening to my voice that is happy with Biden being back in the White House. I mean, if, you, if you, that doesn't bother you, are not a real Republican. You're not an America first, nor are you an establishment Republican. And I don't expect it to be easy. I mean, I don't expect America first to kiss the ring of the establishment. I don't expect the establishment to say, okay, take my chair here. You know, here, here are you, America first. Or take, 
It's a very complicated arrangement that will take a lot of diligent work to, to kind of find some common ground and say, look, at the end of the day, you're, you're on your side of the table. I'm on my side. I mean, I'm real mad and angry with the way you allowed policy to advantage China, to, to you know, some of the trade deals that cost my friends and neighbors their job, the immigration policies that you won't enforce. I am as PO'd as you can imagine about that. But at the end of the day, none of you endorse gender dysphoria. None of you want to spend a trillion dollars a year that we don't have. None of you want to, you know, pay people to not work. But, you know, let's focus on some of these things that we do fundamentally agree upon, whether we're America firsters or establishment-oriented Republicans. So I want to ask, I, you know, when it comes to this issue, I think that the whole reason America First exists is because of the established Republican Party. And I think in 2016, there was um, kind of consolidation where no one, the Republican establishment didn't want Trump, but they ended up kind of caving into the up and coming America First Party. So there was compromise on that regard. But it seems like now I, I think for the America First Party to compromise towards the Republicans or the established Republicans is kind of a step backwards because the whole reason America for, first came into existence is because of the ineptitude. See, but but I'm not asking for compromise. I'm asking okay. for a, a, a mutual respect of one another. Um, okay, well, that's fair. I, I mean, when Trump ran as a Republican, I mean, had Trump run as an America first candidate, I mean, he is an America first candidate, but he's got an R beside his name. It's still a binary choice. I mean, it's a duopoly. You don't like it, I don't like it, but you're going to vote for a Democrat or Republican, or you're wasting your vote. Forget no labels. Forget Joe Manchin. I mean, that's hogwash. That's non. That's nonsense. The next president of the United States will have an R or a D beside his name. Either a Republican will appoint the EPA director or a Democrat. Either the Republican will announce, uh, appoint an AG or a Democrat. If a Supreme Court justice becomes a, you know, a nomination becomes available, either Republican or a Democrat are going to appoint that. So, so my point is, Josh, yes, there are fundamental disagreements on trade. There are fundamental disagreements on China. There are fundamental disagreements on immigration. But there are a lot of things we agree on. We all agree that Biden sucks. We, we all agree that big government's bad. So, so let's concentrate and focus on some of these things we do agree on instead of allowing the media to sensationalize these things we don't. And, you know, the never Trumper, the always Trumper, I'm not a never Trumper, nor am I an always Trumper. I'm a most times Trumper. I'm an always America firster because I do believe the establishment, to your point, Josh, let America down on trade, on immigration, on China. I do believe that we made a series of bad judgments policy relating. I'm not talking about attitude or demeanor or personality. I'm talking about policy. Our policy on trade is bad for the American worker. Our policy on China is bad for the American worker. Our policy on immigration is bad for the American worker. So, so the American worker had to look for somewhere that sang their song. And Trump, whether he believed it or not, sang a song that they said, okay, uh, that, that's my guy. And so, so I understand that, that a vote for Trump is somewhat of an indictment uh, of the status quo Republican. But, but there's got to be some sort of reconciliation or an attempt to reconcile. I mean, you know, if the always Trumper loves going on Breitbart and, and just, ran, you know, ranting in opposition of the never Trumper, and the never Trumper loves going on National Review, ranting in opposition of the always Trumper, Biden's in the White House. 
The Supreme Court is not as conservative as it could have been. And I'm just saying there has to be some mutually agreed upon attempt to reconcile, and they're not subtle differences. I mean, they're pretty significant. I mean, you're asking neoconservatives to forget the way you believed for the last generation. I mean, that's hard. I mean, Tucker would be the evident example of a convert. I mean, Tucker has been willing to publicly say, I was wrong. I believed in the uh, kind of the military-industrial complex. I believed in neoconservatism. I don't believe in that anymore. And there has to be some, once again, my word, uh, what I mean, it's kind of a merging of these commonalities, these things we do mutually uh, believe in. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD, good morning. Good morning. Um, I think that some of what you're discussing is, is kind of you're over the target, but you might not be hitting the target. Part of the problem was that when the – you go back and listen to Ross Perot, and you're going to know that this has been going on for a long time. If you go back and listen to what he was saying when he was stumping for the Republican nomination, and you listen to the complaints that we have now, they're not very different. I mean, you know, yeah, it's transgenderism, but it, it's moral decay. Yeah, it's China. Back then it was South of you know, it, it's all been the same thing. And what it boils down to is at some point, the Republican Party decided that it was okay to be financially conservative and socially liberal. And we could have this live and let live attitude, attitude with the Democrats, and we stopped trying to stop. We got out of the cultural war. Oh, that won't win anything. You can't win on that because the Democrats, that's what they told us, you know. The best thing that happened to the Never Trump movement was the 2020 election, because had Trump won re-election in 2020, it would have settled a debate. And the debate that we're still having, which is Trump can't win, and he can't win without us. If Trump would have won in 2020, America First and the Republican Party would be the same, because it just would be. The problem we've got now is the same thing that we've got in America the Republican Party now has a minority that has got a foothold on the levers of power, and they won't let them go. Same problem Trump had when he went to the White House. Same problem we have. We are electing more America first-like candidates, which really are just more like the 70s and 80s Republicans before the neocons took over. I don't think that you owe a debt of gratitude to the neocons for anything. They are the ones that took over the well-built structure that true Republicans had built prior to that. Um, so I don't think you owe them anything. I think that it's kind of like saying, hey, you're in my seat. More than it's, hey, I need you to get out of that seat. We're going to take it now. Um, this is how politics works. There's more of us than there are of them. We control the platform, and we control the narrative. But for some reason, they're not – playing along because they don't really believe in democratic values. They believe in greed and money and power and success. And we let them in. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, you got a buddy, you, you hold a party, and your buddy says, hey, it's an art if I bring a friend, and then that friend brings a friend, and that friend brings a friend. The next thing you know, it doesn't feel like your party anymore. And that's really what happened. And so I'm going to take a slightly contrary and say, I don't owe them suckers nothing. 
and, and they did not build what we are trying to maintain. They hijacked what we had already built. America first. Republicans always were America first until the neocons took over. So this is not a, a revolution. This is more of a return or a revival, in, in my opinion, to traditional conservative values where we are going to engage in the culture war, where we are going to ask the question, does this benefit all of us? Instead of, oh, no, if, if, if it benefits the hyper-capitalists, then it's good for everybody. And that's what the neocons brought. That's the Gordon Gecko version of republicanism that came in on the backs of oil barons like the Bushes, like the Cheneys, like the Rumsfelds, the warmongering, the, the anything to make a buck. You know, America's national interest comes down to their financial interest, and they ignored the heart and soul of the Republican Party uh, to, their, to their detriment. And now it's, it's time for them to understand that we are going to return this party to what it was, not change it into a light version of the Democrat Party where we make a lot of money and we let the culture go to hell. Larry, you're on a roll, but we got a hard break. Top of the hour. Thank you for the call. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 on Whistleblower Wednesday. That's what we identified today as earlier in the show. I want to get back to the subject between the never-Trumper and the always-Trumper and the conundrum the Republican Party finds itself in. Uh, but a lot of this, I mean, you got investigations, you got indictments in Trump, and then you've got the Biden family with issues of their own. One of those issues we'll find out more about today when a whistleblower, uh, I think Gary Shapley, we know who he is. He's publicly appeared before, but now we've got somebody, uh, I think they're only known as Mr. X. Sounds like a wrestler wearing, a, uh, or excuse me, a wrestler wearing a, uh, wearing a mask. Uh, he'll publicly reveal himself today and a hearing with the House Oversight Committee. Uh, this is another IRS case agent that worked directly under, I think, the supervisory agent. I think Chapley was a supervisory um, agent. He'd be whistleblower number one on this Hunter Biden um, tax case as to whether the government may or may not. To me, that's the only fundamental question we got. Did the government obstruct an investigation or not? I mean, that's kind of where we need to pay closest attention to. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. He's with us. Ryan, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing good, sir. How are you? Is it fair to say that that is probably where the majority of the Republicans' focus will be? Did the government or did a government agent instruct other subordinates to obstruct an investigation? Oh, I think that's absolutely where you can expect a lot of this uh, hearing today to go because you have these whistleblowers who have already kind of made these claims, and now they're going to try to dig more into their testimony and more into what they've been alleging the government did and try to see if they can get any, any more information that kind of leads uh, Republicans into the, 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 the place where they have evidence that, you know, the Department of Justice did interfere with David Weiss's investigation into Hunter Biden. But how do you contradict today what Weiss has said publicly, I mean, Weiss provided a letter saying he was not uh, encouraged to, you know, uh, he was not obstructed, I guess, is the point I'm making. So, so it, it, could we expect Weiss to appear before the oversight after this? 
I think that could be possible down the road for David Weiss to, to potentially appear before the committee. I think it really depends on what happens today. We're expecting almost six hours worth of testimony based off what uh, uh, Comer told the media yesterday. But, you know, we know a lot about what Gary Shapley has alleged, but then you also have this whistleblower who came out earlier this week and backed up and verified a lot of what uh, uh, um, uh, Shapley has said, but also what this whistleblower X has allegedly said and what, what he could say uh, today when he ultimately he's revealed to the general public. So if you have three separate whistleblower claims that are making the same allegation and backing up each other's testimony, you know, that could be stronger evidence for Republicans when they try to pursue more when it comes to this case. And Ryan, you got to believe Republicans will take advantage of this opportunity to go down the road of financial crimes. Um, once again, I think the central question is, did the government or not obstruct an investigation? But certainly you would imagine the Republicans to be ready to try to go as far down that. What did Shapley and the other whistleblower know about the alleged financial crimes? Yes, and of course, you've had Republicans say repeatedly over and over again, they believe that uh, the, the plea deal that Hunter Biden is facing which, you know, uh, the judge, I believe, has not agreed to just yet. They still believe that's a slap on the wrist. And, and Republicans earlier this week have, have wrote, written a letter pretty much asking the judge to not accept the plea deal and to incorporate the whistleblower testimony into their consideration when they're making uh, ultimately the decision whether or not to accept the plea deal agreed to by the U.S. attorney and Hunter Biden. So, you know, this could be an opportunity for Republicans to strengthen that testimony when they send that into the judge and ultimately might be able to break up the case. That cer- certainly could still be a possibility. That's very well explained. Ron, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. You too. Thank you very much. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz talking about whistleblower X. I mean, that would have been in, in wrestling. Who would that have been? Uh, the great pretender or, you know, um, the, the, the man, the, the mask masquerader in wrestling, yeah, in wrestling. <laughs> Uh, there's an A in wrestling. Rat wrestling. Yeah, there, there's an A in wrestling. Um, forget the uh, forget the E. I want to go back to this for a second because uh, I think this is this is the debate of the moment. I mean, th- I mean, you're right. I mean, it's important whether or not the Bidens cre- uh, committed financial crimes. I mean, it, it's it's unbelievably important as to whether the Biden family uh, financially advantaged themselves not 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 by selling access, but but some quid pro quo. Um, you know, you give us this money and we'll get this policy enacted. You give us this money, we'll get this agency to agree or disagree with whatever it is uh, one of these um, domestic or foreign entities we're, we're asking for. But we don't have a lot of control over that. I mean, those listening to my voice fall in one camp or the other. The majority of you are Republicans. I mean, we know the demo. The, the majority of you are Republicans. The majority of you are probably America Firsters. But there's some of you out there who are establishment Republicans who don't like the idea of Trump being the standard bearer for the party. I get it. I understand it. I mean, I think that is a very legitimate position to hold. Um, I mean, I've got very sane people in my life who want Republicans to win, but they don't like the fact that Trump is. I mean, the majority, I've not had but one or two or three tell me under no circumstance have I voted for Trump. I mean, the majority of establishment Republicans will tell me he ain't my first choice. He ain't my second choice, but but if he's the only choice, then then I you know I'll hold my nose. The proverbial I'll hold my nose and cast a ballot uh, in his favor. But but in I mean the, the data is clear. I mean the data is clear that there are some out there under no circumstance. Clay Travis dealt with one of these on Twitter yesterday. I mean the guy said I'm a conservative New Hampshire voter 
There is no way I will vote for Trump if he's the nominee of the party. Well, I mean, that's not, I mean, that's probably, uh, it's anecdotal, obviously, but but how representative of it is the, is, is that, is, is his position, how representative is his position of the average establishment Republican voter? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I've got a, I mean, I, I've heard it's 7%. Well, I mean, 7% in a hotly contested swing state is a big deal. I mean, it's a huge deal in Wisconsin. It's a huge deal in Arizona, in Nevada, in, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania. I mean, th- these are razor-thin margins anyway for one party or another. So if 5% of Republican voters decide to stay home in Pennsylvania, decide to stay home in Arizona, Nevada, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a higher hill to climb. Now, now, there's no doubt and there's no denying that Donald Trump has brought people into the fold who historically have not been Republicans. And I have no idea what, what the National Party is doing to convince Trump voters to, to stay around and vote for other Republicans. I don't have any idea what sort of outreach there is there. Um, you know, I've said before, one of the great mistakes the Republican Party could make, and I think they made some of this, is believing the Trump voter is a Republican voter. Some are, but some Trump voters are Trump voters. And if DeSantis is the nominee, they're, they're going back to wherever it is they came from. You know, they're just not interested at all in, uh, you know, a politician not named Donald Trump. That's the, that's the issue at hand. And, and I don't have any idea what the percentage is. I mean, I, I do believe that, that the, as Larry said, America first won. I mean, if we had a, a six-year debate about the heart and soul of the party and where it goes from here. I mean, it's clear. I mean, there is no doubt about it. The majority of Republican voters don't like where the neocons stood on trade, immigration, China, some of the social issues that they kind of wash their their hands up. Now, I'm I'm a little leery. I'm probably more, and this would be, you know, me being a politician and Larry not. Uh, Larry, Larry looks at this through, you know, kind, kind of a practical lens. I, I look at it through a practical lens skewed by having run for office before. And how do we win? So so I'm I'm real guarded about social issues as uh, the lead charge. I mean, I, I think you've got you've to address, you've got to tell voters where you stand on abortion, where you stand on gay rights, where you stand on transgenderism, where you stand on public education, and, you know, indoctrination is part of the public. I mean, I think you've got, you owe it to voters to have a clearly defined position and, and what you would do if given the opportunity to vote for or against some of these some of these issues. But I still believe at the national level, the majority debate is driven by the economy. Uh, you know, is the economy stupid? Uh, people vote with their wallets and pocketbooks. I think that's kind of a, um, I mean, that, that's something Democrats and Republicans believe in. I mean, Democrats have their view, and they may be a little more committed to the social causes than, than the Republicans are in the preservation of conservatism. Um, but, but I still believe at the end of the day, voters, independent voters in particular, are going to vote for the candidate that they believe will provide uh, the most prosperity. And, 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 you know, it goes back to Trump. Um, if I'm Trump, it's hard to get him to do this. And, and he drives me crazy because he talks more about 18, 19, and 20 than he does about what he wants to do, the policies he wants to implement to liberate the economy you know, the, the trade policies with China and manufacturing back in America. I think people buy into him. I don't know what he's going to do, but I think people believe him when he says, you know, we're going to put people back to work. 
We're going to make aspirin here in America. We're going to make antibodies here in America. We're going to build more widgets here in America. He's, he's created some believability. And maybe it's because he, he's associated with being a business guy. And you know how those non, no-nonsense business guys are. I mean, they'll, they'll kind of take on uh, some of these challenges. That's his winning hand as far as I'm concerned. But, but he still seems, he seems to be almost infatuated with wanting to talk about one happened at 18, 19, and 20. And, and I you just, said on last night's town hall, he was still at it. It huh? was discouraging. I mean, it, dude, you know, we know. I mean, <laughs> the, the, nearly everybody that voted for you believe you got jobbed. 99% of the Trump voters believe that Donald Trump got jobbed in 20. Let it be. Let it be. Let's win in 24. And the recipe to win is let that be juxtapose your economic agenda to Joe Biden's. That's where the winning um, ticket is. And 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 go meet with Brian Kemp and go meet with Doug Ducey and go meet with Glenn Youngkin. Go, go meet with some of the leadership, Republican leadership in some of these states that you didn't win that are in play. And, and let's collaborate. Let's figure out a way to build a bridge from one to the other. And, and let's put America first back in the White House. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. You're on. Hey, there you go, Ken. You got the Beatles this morning, man. Let it be. Uh, the number is 235, so I apologize yesterday. 235, not 237. That's yeah, we were learning on the fly. We, we, we kind of we, we did we, the math. Yeah, we were learning on right the fly. Right after you hung up. My problem was I wasn't taking into account that Ohio lost an electoral vote and West Virginia did. Correct. But, but you guys brought up um, Ross Perot. Now, Ross Perot wasn't a Republican. He was he was an independent. And uh, I, you guys will remember the old commercials with the chickens and this. He was talking about Clinton uh, from a little small state. Um, you know, and people don't remember that the Democrats had lost five out of six national elections. So they weren't they weren't doing very good back in the 80s. Uh, and then 92 comes along. And here is Perot. He is the anti-NAFTA. I guess he would be America first. He was a businessman. Uh, he went to the Naval Academy, worked for IBM. He ended up starting his own business. I think that's what the American dream used to be. Go to college, um, start your own, work for a big company, start your own business. So then you have Bush. He's the establishment figure back in the day. And then you get a guy like Clinton, which he's a political opportunist. I hate to say it like that, but Next thing you know, uh, Perot gets 19% of the votes. And, and one thing, too, Perot dropped out of that election. I don't know if people remember that. He, he dropped out, and then he came back in, and he claimed that Bush was trying to raid his daughter's wedding or something like that. But anyway, Clinton gets in there with 43% of the vote. And I think Evan Brown actually said something about, you know, if it weren't for Perot, Bush would have probably won the election. So that's one thing. Uh, now, uh, last night, the Arizona Cardinals beat the Atlanta Falcons, what, 16 to 13, Ken? Yeah, we touched mm-hmm. on that this morning. Mm-hmm. Beat them by a field goal. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, Christian Walker had a good game. Austin Riley had a good game. But as far as politics, if you look at Arizona Cardinals, they're in Phoenix, Atlanta, I mean, it's amazing. I call it city states. Uh, there's an Atlanta, and then there's a Georgia. There's a Phoenix, and then there's an Arizona. And I think when it comes to some of these political numbers, like Maricopa County, um, Trump won it by 45,000 votes in 2016. 
He lost it by 54,000 votes in 2020. That's a 100,000 vote swing. Uh, and those counties, I call them the Atlanta collar counties, you just have to minimize your marginal loss because you're not going to win there. But I'm just saying these big cities, all these states, Philly controls Pennsylvania, Detroit controls Michigan, Milwaukee and Madison control Wisconsin. This is the, it's the city state what we're living in uh, with this politics now. So y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. You know, I've often wondered this and time will tell what will America first look like post Trump? I mean, whether it's 24, whether it's 28, the day that Trump exits the political scene and, you know, we don't have that dominating presence. What does America first look like? I mean, JD Vance will be a part of it, but he's not Trump. I mean, Josh Hawley will be a part of it. He's not Trump. Rand Paul will be a part of it. He's not Trump. Um, there will be others that come along. They're not Trump. I mean, nobody's going to have that dominating uh, presence. And and once again, dominating good, dominating bad, right? I mean, it cuts both ways. Um, I doubt there's going to be a never J.D. Vancer or a never Josh Hawley-er. <laughs> Probably. You know, or a never Rand Pauler. Um, I mean, they, they're not as polarizing. That They're not as as complicated to, to, to kind of digest. And, and this is kind of a newfound phenomenon. When Drew, the only thing that I disagree with Drew McKissick on when he comes on Thursdays, Drew says we've seen this before. Ah, I don't know that we've seen a realignment as significant as this. I mean, to compare, uh, the, the, the Tea Party didn't have a fearless leader. I mean, it, it, was a, I mean it, was a, it was a set of ideas. The government spending too much money. The debt's going to be a strangle on the, on the economy. We, we got we to gotta get it back into control. And you had, you know, um, Sarah Palin, and I mean, there, there were, I mean, it was a movement, no doubt, but there was not a, uh, you know, a larger than life person. I mean, it would have been the E Street Band minus Bruce Springsteen. It would have been the Beatles minus Paul and John. It just was not the same. You got to have this personal identity. I mean, it, you know, identify with that person. Uh, that person, uh, you know, symbolizes that movement. Um, so, so when, when, when Trump leads, whenever that is, and let's say JD Vance becomes kind of the, um, the heir apparent, J, J, I mean, how many people are going to be as enthusiastically supportive of, or, or are against JD Vance? I mean, he's not going to draw that sort of, um, attention. He's not going to, once again, he's not going to motivate as many people to vote for him, not going to motivate as many people to vote against him. I mean, I don't think JD Vance is that kind of guy. I mean, I think he's an America first or undeniable. In fact, when Trump decided to not go to Tucker's event with, with the Blaze uh, Media Group, he asked to send J.D. Vance in his place. And, uh, you know, the organizers of the event said, oh, if you don't come, we don't want a surrogate. We don't want someone to come speak on your behalf. I found it interesting. I mean, that's how much confidence Trump has. Right. I, you I know, didn't hear that. That's yeah, interesting. I mean, he, he, just, he proposed J.D. Vance as kind of a stand-in. And, um, and they said no, and I get that. I mean, you know, either you come or nobody comes on your behalf. But, um, but, but David just touched on something that we did um, yesterday, and I want to get into this with Drew tomorrow. So, so Trump was at 232 last year, right, Rev? We, 2020. Th- th- in 2020. Th- there's been a net gain of three. So Trump's 235. If he holds serve, He's at 235. And the net gain at three is the change in the Electoral College. States have moved because of population in the uh, census Correct. in 2020. Texas picked up two. Um, I think there's a net gain. I think seven um, Electoral College votes were moved around or reshuffled 
And of the seven, the Republicans pick up three. So there's a net gain of three. I think Texas got one, Florida got one, West Virginia lost one, Ohio lost one, Oregon gained one. But I think Oregon gained one from a Democrat state like New York. So that's kind of a, you know, that's net neutral. Um, But anyway, 232 turns into 235. So if the election played out exactly as it did in 2020, uh, Trump wins 235 electoral votes. Put Atlanta on the board. I mean, you know, David's right, city-state. I said that on purpose. I mean, put Atlanta, Georgia on the board. I mean, it's you got Georgia of 10 million people, uh, probably 12, excuse me, 12 million by now, but about 6.5 million of those live in the greater Atlanta metropolitan area. So if you take the 235 and you do what I've suggested and you put Brian Kemp in a very prominent role, I've said VP, let's say Kemp doesn't want to be VP, offer him Secretary of State, Attorney General, make him one of the most important figures in the Trump administration. You can't go to the public and say, hey, Kemp and I made a deal. But you can go to Kemp. Kemp and I made a deal. And you put Georgia on lockdown because the voters in Georgia like Brian Kemp. You go from 235 to 251. You've got Nevada with six, Arizona 11, Wisconsin 10, Michigan 20, Pennsylvania 20. I mean, I just think that that really increases the likelihood that Trump or another Republican wins. If if you, I mean, if Trump in particular, I mean, if 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 if, if Trump can figure out a way to make a deal with Kemp and get Georgia solidly in his category, you're at two fifty one with only nineteen to go. I, I just think that really, really puts the Republicans at an advantage. First time in a long time. You don't have to fight over Ohio. You don't think. You don't think you've got to fight over Florida. Keep saying Ron DeSanctimonious. You may end up fighting uh, over over Florida. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. I don't understand why we must ha- we must have the best of every single day that you guys are not at the radio station. And now... We have to have the best of on Saturday. <laughs> we get tired as it is on weekends. We get the same old, same over, hour after hour, all weekend long. And we hear Brian, um, kill me. If we hear him one time, we hear him 15 times. Why can't we have some music or something else. I think that's, uh, Rev, I'll let you address music? that. Music? Music on the talk radio station? Well, uh, I hear your uh, complaints, I guess. So too much best of when the show is off, which is not very often. I mean, we had vacation, you know, week before last and holidays, but besides that. And then Saturday best of, that's a new feature. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I don't have any idea. I mean, you've told me the Limbaugh contract required you to play him on Saturdays. Yeah, they, they, that, was, that was part of the contract. But but it is something that, for, for this show, we did add a feature for Saturdays. It's a best-of show, and it runs on, well, it actually is a little bit of a different time. on In Florence, on uh, Live 95, it runs 9 a.m. to noon. In Sumter on WDXY, it's uh, 7A to 10A. And then on uh, WTQS in Orangeburg, it's 9 to noon as well. But but the Saturday talk lineup 
is a regurgitation of things we talked about Mostly, Monday yes. through Friday by yep. Gino and everybody. Yep. I mean, it's, that's, it's kind all, of, that's kind of the formula for that. And, and I, you know, I, I understand the, um, the complaint, uh, you know, too much of anybody is too much <laughs> of, of anybody. I get that. And, and I've addressed that with Rev. You know, I, I'm like, there's a little beauty in scarcity, but, but this is the model. I mean, it's not, you know, uh, I have no idea why someone would play music on a Saturday on a talk stage. Yeah, that makes no sense. You can't do that. I mean, uh, that, that would be I mean, that's just way crazy. out of, I mean, that, out that's of the just, I mean, that, let's be, that's dumb. I mean, <laughs> you know, to, to decide on Saturdays we're going to play music on a station on, that plays on talk, talk 24-7 yeah. is just, I mean, that makes no That'd sense be confusing. at all. But I certainly understand, um, you know, the, uh, the complaint of, hey, man, I hear you guys Monday through Friday. I want to hear something else on Saturday. But that's where. Well, it's the the best of that. I think she was. Maybe if we come in and do a live show on Saturday mornings, that's kind of what she wanted. You want to work Saturdays? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's, <laughs> no, let, let's let's do better than that. Let's do one late Friday afternoon from Litchfield. Okay. Yeah, that that would get real fun. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Let's do it from about. That nine. would be an, that'd be an enhanced show. It would be. Yeah. It would be very celebrated. Yeah. I'll just say that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how long we'd stay on the air because it could get even more colorful than it does. Uh, Monday through Friday. But anyway, thanks for thanks for the uh, message on the Weiner line there. Your concerns and complaints are duly noted. And no feelings are hurt here. No. Rest assured, there are no feelings or feathers ruffled. Um, uh, it's just it's the it's the nature of the business. Now, what music would we play on the talk station if we were to play music? Well, Springsteen. We could do a. Oh, I'd say we do a yeah. polka music hour. Maybe or... we could do this. Could you get permission from satellite radio to broadcast East Street Radio? <laughs> I don't think so. On Saturday mornings. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, fair enough. Or would we want to? Then you're stuck with us, ma'am. You're talking this morning about an election between Trump and Biden again. I keep getting these um, flyers in the mail from the, uh, they call themselves the AFP Action, which is the Americans for Prosperity Action say they're not affiliated with any candidate or candidates committee but what their their flowers are saying are that the democrats are celebrating that all the signs point to a re-election victory for joe biden if donald trump is the gop nominee even worse republicans will lose the house and the senate too so what do you think ken about these thank you that's the political action committee doing the bidding uh, of the people that pay them to do the bidding. I mean, they, you know, they don't believe in anything. These political action committees don't believe in anything. I mean, that, that they will say and do whatever those who pay them to say and do. And the American for Prosperities, if they've been paid by a group to say that Trump is, is the least likely Republican to win uh, the presidency, that's what they'll say, whether they believe it or not. And they'll drum up enough research, you know, spin it around enough to say X, Y, or Z, I'll tell you, I'm not saying, and I understand Citizens United. I mean, I do. I think Roberts made a sound judgment on his interpretation of the Constitution. I just think it, it, it haunts politics. I mean, I just think it's bad. I mean, when, um, when political action committees can spend hundreds of millions of dollars advocating for or against something, it too heavily influences uh, the, 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 the honesty of the process. It becomes more corrupt, more dishonest, more misleading, more spinny. Politicians do enough of that. Forget it. I mean, they, they, they don't need help, you know, um, misleading people or, or spinning things to, to suit their fancy. 
But I think political action committees with a couple of hundred million dollars in the bank um, trying to convince you of X, Y, or Z are just not good for a representative republic. I mean, it's just not. I think money, uh, what's the Bible say? The love of money is the root of all evil. I think money genuinely, sincerely is what has caused a lot of our problems in America. You believe in certain things, Rev. I believe in certain things. Josh believes in certain things. But people who don't believe in anything and and, and by, you know, cashing big checks and getting big payments, you know, they, they, they spin, meister these things into um, the political. I, I just think that's very unhealthy, very unhealthy for the way we elect our, um, our elected officials. I just want to know how in the world a man could take stand in front of the whole world and brag that he abused his power and become the president of the United States. Please answer that. I, I, you know, I'd do you one better than that. How, how can, I mean, at least he was coherently explaining how he abused his privilege. I mean, there's some, you know, I, the points we've made for an hour are, are what concerns me deeply. We have a very corrupt and incompetent man in the White House. I mean, I think that's established. I think we'll find out more today as the whistleblower um, hearings go on but, but we have a very diminished and corrupt politician, career politician in the White House. And if the never Trumper and always Trumper don't make a deal with one another, there, there's a pretty good chance that that significantly diminished and unbelievably corrupt Democrat gets back in the White House again. And that is a travesty. And the travesty, it's, it's avoidable. If the never Trumper... And the always Trumper can in some way, shape, or form agree that Trump, DeSantis, Trump, uh, you know, Haley, Trump, Scott, Trump, Ramaswamy, whomever is better than this decrepit old man who I believe is as corrupt as the Clintons were. I mean, I, I believe this. I think the Clintons were smarter. <laughs> that's saying something. Yeah, but that, that's absolutely um, saying something. You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Live, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. That's a good idea. Maybe we have the best we got on Sundays. <laughs> oh, for, that, for that winer call. <laughs> you know, the best of on Saturday, the best we got yeah. on Sunday. Josh, make a note there. The best we got on Sunday. <laughs> Can you sell it? Well, I mean, that's all we need to know. Uh, that, <laughs> I'll tell you this, if we could, that would be the best we got on Sunday. I know how this business works. <laughs> well, welcome about, to radio. Yeah, forget the ratings. This is about revenue, folks. I can assure you of that. And I think everybody understands uh, that, that when a product becomes somewhat popular, and, and marketable that there's, you know, there, there's a, a reason the station tries to find other opportunities to put it on the, I get it. I mean, I understand it. I've complained to Ref forever about the Saturday lineup. I mean, I'm like, dude, we're playing the same crap that we played Monday through Friday. And, and we want to add our crap to that crap. And yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, but, but I, you know, I don't know crap, why it makes apparently. any sense to my, you know, well, I mean, eventually we do. Now, people get tired of it over and over and over and over and, again. And, and I will point out, though, especially for Gamecock fans, we have Gamecock football on Live 95, the Florence affiliate station, um, in the fall on Saturday. So that'll be on the air. So that'll be a, a disruption of the yeah. 
the drumbeat of crap yeah. that you have to hear on uh, on Saturday mornings <laughs> and Saturday oh, afternoon. That sounds like a new promo night. we need to put together. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to the drumbeat yeah. of crap. Well, I mean, you know, let's find a sponsor of enough of crap. You know, <laughs> enough of crap brought to you by Jeez. such and such. Let's go to the vault. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, but your best job is better than Rachel Madden will ever be. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Hey, yeah, the, the thing that that Trump has showed us is how corrupt the administrative state is. And I used to wonder back in the 2000s, why never, nothing ever changed. You talked about the Tea Party. That's because the, the neocons hated you know, they embed all these people into the administrative state. So all the Bidens have done is what they've done forever. It started out at the local level whenever they put Biden's son on the board of Visa, whenever they went before the Senate and Biden was the chair of the committee. They put him on the board of, of Visa six months before um, Amtrak. They put him on that board. Six months before they go before the committee for money, and all they did was just escalate as they went up the ladder. You know, the Clintons were the same way as they went through the process; they escalated the corruption. Now we know we've got to get into the deep state, but the the problem is people don't understand. You got the the Democrats in the Senate want to hold an ethics committee to impose ethics on the Supreme Court. Even these people don't understand the Constitution of the United States. AOC doesn't have a clue. I guarantee you 70% of the United people in the United States can't tell you the three branches of the government. But the Senate, the Senate and the House, you know, they're Article 1. The President's Article 2 and the Supreme Court's Article 3. That's like the, the Democrats want to call the president before a committee in the House or the Senate and say, hey, you're going to do this. No, it don't work like that. It's, that's, that's the biggest problem we got. But I'll tell you what the Democrats have done. We've got the highest regarded, most secured crack house in the world. And they finally accomplished that in the White House. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that, my man. <laughs> hey, real quick, can you get us in? Um, Josh uh, Revels to read this, and I want him to read it. But real quick, I, I want to put people at ease. Here's the guy in charge. Oh, you yeah. ready, Josh? You ready? Here's the guy in charge. And we brought Israelis and Palestinians together at a political level, and they, uh, and Akwa uh, and and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, as I uh, affirmed the prime minister, and we. He's on top of it. I oh, mean, yeah. if you're an investor in the American government, uh, your investment is well kept. I mean, there's a guy guarding the fort, mining mm-hmm. the, the fence. I mean, standing lookout. Did he doze off when I, he was I, in the no, middle I, of that? That, that, that is statement. absurd. I mean, that, that is absurd. But but I'll tell you the lesson in this. He will be the president again if Republicans don't rally around whoever the nominee is. It's another hot day today, and so our thirst responders have teamed up with Pepsi of Florence, and we're icing down some Aquafina water and some Gatorade sports drinks, and we're going to be hitting the roads a little bit later on today. Our promotions department will be out there, so keep your eye on the Live 95 Facebook page and the Florence Community Broadcaster Stations, all the Facebook pages, uh, for information about where we will be handing out some free iced-down drinks courtesy of Pepsi of Florence. Again, Aquafina water, 
Gatorade sports drinks on a hot day like today, it'll be great. It is so hot. I saw a dog chasing a cat, and they were both walking. <laughs> that reminds me. I'm serious. Braves, I, mean, I, I can see broadcast. Pete Van Weer and Ernie Johnson, Skip Carey uh, in that in that broadcast booth together. You're right. David's right. The Braves lost by a field goal um, yesterday. <laughs> uh, you know, I would, it's kind of interesting. You're a big Braves fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a Braves fan. And, and a lot of this hinges on Georgia. You know, the the the, yeah. the the city that is home to your favorite baseball team may be the city that costs your guy the presidency. Oh, killing me. <laughs> Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.